1: want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there go to ultraaudio.com that's U-L-T-R-O and use the discount code DOM20 that'll save you around $35 that's ultraaudio.com U-L-T-R-O and the discount code DOM20
0: Runners only, yeah, yeah. let's get it started. Ay, ay. This is Runners Only with Dime Harley. Uh, fast pace, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Uh, just wanna connect for everyone who loves running. This is Runners Only, Yeah, yeah. let's get it started. Ay, ay. This is Runners Only with Dime Harley. Uh, fast pace, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Uh, just wanna connect for everyone who loves running. Hey, Runners Only with Dime Harley.
1: Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Mike King, advocate. Advocate. And how does that how does it
2: non runner?
1: Uh, well, that's the thing. The podcast is called Runners Only, Mike King, and um the I know you're a non runner now and I spoke to a few people um and I said I was meeting you today and getting you on the podcast and they're like, Does he run or just to the letterbox? But
2: I tell you this, I tell you this. Okay. A world exclusive. No one knows. You're the first to find out. Uh, Next February with Rick Wells and uh, Ian Jones. We are doing a triathlon from, wait for it, Cape Reina to Wellington. So we are swimming, running, and cycling from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the North Island in about eight days.
1: Jeez, you're in fabulous company. So um, you're yeah, Rick Wells, Ironman champion from the 80s and
2: World, 90s, eh? World yeah, short yeah. course Ironman champion, Ian Jones. The Carmo Kid. Yep, legendary All Black and add-on me. and and <laughs> Well, you know, Rick said I'm going to raise some money for I Am Hope I'm yeah. gonna, uh, for Gumboot Friday, sorry, mm. for kids counselling. I said, what a great idea, and he goes, I'm going to swim, and I'm going to ride, and I'm going to, I said, oh, that's cool, oh, I'll do it, but I can't swim, he said, I'll teach you, so I started in January, and I uh, couldn't swim a stroke, I uh, never learned to swim, I mean, I could float around in a pool, but I couldn't swim, and uh, I've been doing it ever since, I'm going to, straight after this, I'm going down to Newmarket pool, and um, try and knock out a K down there, and just, yeah, and I've been on the bike. The only thing that I'm I'm short of at the moment is the running because of my knees. But I'll get yeah,
1: there. Yeah. Wow. So, um, how old are you now? What are you Sixty?
2: Like, I just turned sixty. Yeah. yeah. yeah so I uh, will try you? new adventures. You yeah, know? but it's,
1: I mean, it's um, there is that saying you can't can't teach an old dog new tricks. But I mean, you can you can learn anything at any age. But it, it doesn't get any easier. Was it terrifying getting in the pool?
2: Yeah, I think that I think that saying's null and void. I think yeah. you know that that used to be the saying, and that was just stubbornness. Uh, but anyone who, anyone who has seen <clears throat> the transition of my career um, from a chef to comedy and f- from comedy and and quite a um, you know uh, politically incorrect, homophobic, sexist, racist, uh, misogynist uh, you, comedian, you was
1: you were savage.
2: Yeah, I was savage. Uh, and then to transition out of that into a mental health advocate, I think. Um, We've broken the mold and we've mm, proved that people mm, can change. And, yeah. you know, I, I often have people coming to me, you know, because at, at my mental health talks, you know, you've got to balance comedy with reality. And I do that. And, you know, people who like the comedy go, would you, you know, why, you ever do stand-up? No. Why not? Because it's not who I am anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. And then they say, "Would you do game of two uh, game of two halves again?" How no. <laughs> that, you know,
1: that, <laughs> that show was legendary at its time, though. At its time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it
2: was like it was like you know it was like a lot of programs from back then. Benny Hill. You'd never have that mm. again. I mean, you know, and um, that's what it was for me. It yeah. was the it was the Benny Hill of our day, and yeah. that's where it should stay.
1: Yeah. Right. But I mean, even even like way more recent than Benny Hill. If you look at a show like Little Britain from yeah. say ten years ago, yeah, yeah. couldn't get away with that now. Um, yeah. Oh man, there's there's so much to um, so much to unpack with you. Uh, so so much to talk about because it's just been a hell of a life. Yeah. Was, it's, it's, it's 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 bonkers. It's nuts. I, I, I introduced you as a fucking advocate.
2: <laughs> I, I have <clears throat> had a very fulfilling life, yeah. and you know, if I'd if, uh, you know, if, on the day I was born, if I you know. Even five years ago, would I what would I I've known where I was going to be, and do I know where I'm going to be in another five years? The answer is no. I'm just, mm. you know, I've I, <clears throat> I've spent my whole life uh, with with no self esteem, always thinking everyone else is better. Kids were better than me, faster, stronger, athletically more gifted than I was, and I, I spent my whole life looking for my purpose. And during that time, I spent my life like running down this long corridor, just kicking open doors, mm. just kicking open doors, making things happen. Um, in the last few years, I've realized that that was wrong. When you're going down the corridor of life and kicking open doors, hoping to find something, all you find is rooms with more doors. Yeah. So what I do now is I, just, I am where I'm meant to be right now, and if there's a door that's open... I'll go in. That's the door I'm supposed to be in. There might be a lion in that door, but it's still where I'm supposed to be at that time. Is that still like
1: saying everything happens for a reason? yeah,
2: Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just trying to go with the universe and go through the doors, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but always, whether it's good or bad, Appreciating that this is where I need to be. There's a lesson here. Mm. I don't know what the lesson is. There's <laughs> a lesson here. <laughs> It'll and become lesson, Yeah, <laughs> and the lesson might be uh, stay the fuck away from lies. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know. Okay. So, um, I mean, you were you were a, a very successful comedian, like like a massive massive star, as big as what you can get in New Zealand. But no comedians ever going to be named Kiwi Bank New Zealander of the year. It's, it's weird, eh? That's phenomenal. So, okay, let's go all the way back. So, um. So you're from um, Fanuapai? Yep. I grew
2: up in in Fanuapai village. So
1: what are you you like as a kid?
2: Um, I was one of those. So I was a kid that never felt like I was good enough, as I said. And I was, um, you know, biggest hero in my life was my dad. Mm. And I always wanted to impress my dad. I wanted my dad to look at me in front of his mates and go, yeah, that's my boy. Future All Black, that's my boy. My old man wasn't that sort of, he didn't pat kids on the head, he booted them in the ass. I knew I was loved, but he was a man of few words.
1: He just didn't show it, didn't show any sort of vulnerability or anything. No, never. A product, do you think, um, just a product of his time?
2: Yeah, 100%. Uh, I realize now that my dad didn't have a dad, so he didn't know how to be a dad. Yeah. You know, he was just winging it as he went along, and for him it was work. And he taught me the four rules to being a man, protect your family, provide for your family, give your kids a better opportunity than you have, and never show weakness. And those four things for me added up to work. My love language with my kids was always money. Why? Because I didn't have any, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, we never went on a holiday, so, you know, with my kids, we went to Fiji, we went to Raro, we went to all of these, Australia, places that I'd never been when I was mm. a kid, so uh, as a kid growing up, I had no self-esteem, uh, so I was loud and obnoxious, I did what <laughs> most Kiwi kids do, you know, I was just super loud, yeah, you know, and um, always trying to impress my dad, you know, sadly it couldn't happen, so I was always looking to be world champion at something. Mm. This was the standard that I thought my dad had set for me. I had to be so I was a great starter of projects. Yeah. Uh rugby, you know, soccer, anything. I just looking to be a world champion, running, even tried running, I tried everything. And as soon as I knew I couldn't be world champion, like better than average wasn't good enough. Mm. You know, best of my school, not good enough. I had to be world champion. And so I was always looking for that thing. And um at eight years old I a mate of mine told a joke in front of a a whole lot of kids, and no one laughed, and they started mocking him and trying to get him to tell a joke again, and I told the joke. I told exactly the same joke, and everyone laughed.
1: Why? What was the – was it timing? Was it uh, I delivery?
2: No. I, I have no clue. People often say, you know, like, oh, you know, you're – you know, telling jokes must be really hard for you, and, you know, for me, it's easy. It's like saying to Eric Clapton, must be hard to play the guitar, mm. For him, it's easy. I, I don't know what it is. I just had a gift for it. I knew I was good at it, and it saved me. Like I, I, I never hit puberty till I was nearly eighteen years old. So if you know, when you're going through high school in West Auckland, and you know people whose balls haven't dropped get mocked mercilessly, <laughs> um, so you have to use the skills that you've got. Mm. So I had two skills. One uh, was comedy. But two, I wasn't afraid of getting knocked out. So I would just, I would always throw first punch and I would just get in there. And, you know, so people went, this kid's crazy. So I wasn't picked on. So my comedy, that really helped. Yeah. My, my angry, my anger, I guess, uh, that really helped too. I was four foot 11, but, you know, I got away with a lot of stuff because I was a crazy kid.
1: Yeah. Were, were, were you an angry kid? Well, yeah, you, I was. Yeah, was well, yeah why? Like when why were you we when, angry? When
2: you're, striving to, you know, when you're striving for the approval of the, the big people in your life and you're not getting it, you, you got two options. You curl up in a ball and you cry or you lash out. Mm. I was a lasher out, you know. Um, so, but, but comedy was always my go-to. And I told my dad I want to be a comedian. He went, yeah, you can't be a fucking clown. <laughs> That's not a job. You got you know, like you've, you, you you gotta have a you gotta have a trade, mate. What,
1: what was what was your dad's job? What was his line of work?
2: So my dad was a salesman. Oh, yeah. My dad was a salesman. He ended up a gardener. He was, yeah, you know, he was. My my dad was a very charismatic, good-looking fella. Great sportsman. You know, um, he he could he could play any musical instrument. He could play any instrument. Couldn't read music, but if he couldn't play it, like one day when I was eight years old, he bought home a set of bagpipes the next day every cat in the neighborhood wanted to sleep with those bagpipes he could he could do anything amazing he was a uh, a great sportsman single figure handicap golfer left-hand right-handed mm. good footy player good-looking fellow with lots of friends i want to be just like my dad
1: so the you, you the first two things you said about your dad were good-looking and charismatic and yeah. uh, you you tick those two boxes
2: no don't you think no oh you've got well, when i was a um, kid like as a kid, I was an ugly child. No seriously, four foot eleven, buck teeth, big ears, rubber lips, had right. a massive head. Like it looks normal now, dummy. It looks normal now, but you—I was born with this head. Right. Imagine this head on a little <laughs> bubble body. Funny. I could show you a picture of me and my David Bain top <laughs> with my with my with my massive head. So I was you know, <laughs> like a Barbie Dommy. I, I remember this is true. My brother was really good looking. And he was dad's favorite. He got a nickname. His nickname was Butch. He was a good-looking kid. And uh, I remember a girl I had a crush on, Debbie Lazarus, I'll never forget. You know, and she go to the pool and watch her in a bikini, and you know, lie on my little boner. Going, ah, ah, ah,
3: ah, she's amazing.
2: And I remember saying to her, and she was one of my best mates, right? And I said to her, you know, so me and my brother used to play this game. I'm better than you at this. I'm better than you at this. He was an artist and all kinds of things. And uh, I remember saying to Deb, oh, like, I'm better than, I'm better looking than Brian. And she, would, <laughs> no, I went like, and like, I, I was crushed. I was seriously oh. crushed because I always thought I was a good look And she went, no. And um, and she said, have you seen your head? And I was like, <laughs> what, what's wrong with my head? And then at around the, about the same time, I was at Henderson Square, you know, trying on uh, a, a pair of pants. And it was the first time. You know those mirrors where they have the mirrors connecting in the what's the name? Yes, and in the dressing room, yeah. And it was the first time I saw the side of my head. (laughs) I look like that character out of Enemy Mine with Lewis Gossett Junior. That big cone at the back of your head. I tell you, you it's a a, no
1: you're exaggerating. No, no This this is comedy for exaggeration.
2: It traumatized me so much that I tried to get avoid people looking at me side on. Seriously, it was it was such a traumatizing experience because you only ever see your face. Mm. You don't see, <laughs> no. Seriously, you don't see the rest. I'm gonna i to find this picture for you.
1: Yeah, picture uh, no, didn't happen. I. I feel like it's everyone's got their own insecurities. Yeah, and I thought like this was no, yours. Right. But this was, it was in your own head, though. Yeah, and of
2: course it was your in your own my giant head, head. But that's my own giant head. <laughs> but that was enough. That was always going to be yeah. enough. uh where am I? You'll love this. Uh, so this is how look how young I am. You know how old I am, there, Dom?
1: You look like you're. Um, you said you hit puberty at eighteen. You got a yeah. moustache. there. I'm twenty-two.
2: No, that there's thirty-six. Thirty-six. Thirty-six years. Fuck. Old.
1: See, what I'm seeing there is that's a that's a handsome dude.
2: That, that is a handsome. Yeah, dude. Yeah, that's a good-looking that, man. Yeah, I did grow it. And my, my dad said you would grow. I'd grow into my head, and I did,
1: <laughs> and I did. Where is this
2: bloody picture? You can never find them when you yeah, need them.
1: Yeah, no, because it's fake news. Yes,
2: yeah, fake news. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what it is. Oh my goodness gracious me! I can't find it, but just trust me. I've shown it there. Uh, I've shown it at um, talks when I give my corporate talks, and and people. Go, oh my God! Look at you. Yeah. No, I can't find it. I'm sorry. Okay, no worries. It doesn't exist. I, I don't. I don't it's believe not it anyway. True.
1: I, I feel like it was. It was in in your own mind. Yeah, yeah. Like, like most of be. these things. Like yeah. okay, so so, um, so you crack that joke at school and you you get the laugh that the other kid doesn't. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's like a it's like a dopamine rush. Like it's yeah. a it's a real adrenaline rush. So then why why do you become a chef?
2: Because uh, my dad wanted me to have a trade.
1: Right. Was, and also, when, when are we talking here? Like 70s? 70s, yeah, 80s? 70s,
2: yeah, 1970s. So I'm guessing I, like comedy wasn't really a viable... 1977, I went and worked at our um, Matador restaurant in Auckland, New Zealand's first licensed restaurant. Then I went and worked at Bonaparte's, Fisherman's Wharf, Palomino at a Henderson, and ended up finishing my apprenticeship at Al Trovador. I went to um, chef school. I was in the same class as Judith Tabron from Seoul and Meccano, one of the wow. girls. She's in New Zealand the Chef's Hall of Fame. Yeah. You know, but she... Were you good? No, I was terrible. i tell you how terrible I was. No, I'll put it this way. Yeah. I'll put it to you this way. I can copy anything a chef shows me and and replicate it perfectly. I, I don't have the ability to look at a box of ingredients and go, I'm going to turn it into this. I remember one time... Judith got 10 out of 10 for a sauce that she made. And when she wasn't looking, I grabbed her sauce and took it up for marking.
3: Right? <laughs>
2: and I took it up, and the freaking teacher gave me 8 out of 10. Yeah. And, you know, me being me, I was like, Huh, what a load of shit that is. I gave, this is Judith's sauce. She gave her 10 out of 10, and he only gave me 8 out of 10. She goes, yes, but Judith brought charisma with it. What does that mean? Well, That's part of cooking, right? Right. Judith would always be immaculate. There wouldn't be a spot of sore. I was always covered in shit. My hat wasn't starched. So I, you know, so I I did cooking. Um, You know, I was trying to find myself early, and um, I joined. um, uh, I started prospecting for the Mungroo mob. Did you really? Yeah. Why? Why why did that seem like a good idea? Well, I was trying to fit in. Right. Right. You just try and fit in. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to find myself. These guys were looking super cool for me. I just started drinking.
3: Mm.
2: You know, I'm, I was smoking weed at 13, and just so for me, it was just uh, you know, it was part of a family. Mm. And then uh, we we as a prospect, we had to go and throw some uh, Molotovs cocktails at the Highway 61 pad. Me and another prospect. Uh, we did that, and they chased. And it was only in Sandringham Road, actually. And then they chased, us, went to run back to the car where the prayers was, and he'd taken off. So we were on our own. I'm running down the road, find them down the road. These guys are right up our ass. Jump into the car and think we're safe. And instead of driving away, he tried to run them over. Mm. And they were diving, we were on the footpath, you know, just. And I was like. Whoa! What the hell is this? And then we get when we left, I go, "What would happen if you know you'd hit them?" And he just looked at me and he started laughing. And I went, "Oh, I was going to be driving the car. You know that was the deal." And yeah. at that point, there I went, "I'm yeah, not going not to for jail me. for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no way in the hell I'm doing this." So I joined the merchant navy. Right. When I saw my uncle and joined the merchant navy and went away to sea for the next fourteen years.
1: Was oh, right? Is it after shipping?
2: Yeah, no, yeah, So, uh, oh, yeah, I, yeah. so I, I joined the. I'd qualified with my yeah. London City and guilds, and uh, the first job I went and got was, um, yeah, I shipped out. Right, you enjoy that? No, I hated it.
1: Why did you do it for so long?
2: Um, because the money was so good,
1: right? You know, right. And, the,
2: and the time on, time off, um, it was horrible. You know, I just got into, <laughs> I just got into a relationship. I just got married. And, you know, my wife was cheating on me and, you know, there was no communication. Mm. It was letters back in those days. You wrote letters, you know. Uh, You had a phone call and she had to be home and you'd run down to the end of the wharf to make a phone call, collect, and she's not home. So for me it was trauma, Mm. just constant trauma. So I just turned to drugs and alcohol. You can get all the drugs you want and get all the alcohol you want just to survive, you know, and then get home and fight mm. and all kinds of, you know, with the, with, with yeah. the person you're supposed to be in love with. And, yeah, so it was horrible. It was very traumatic that whole oh, it's time. awful. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, so that was – you you're married again now. You've only been married twice?
2: No, three times. Oh, three times. So, so I oh, So married. the first one
1: failed when you were in the Navy? Uh,
2: the first one failed when I walked out. Right, I, right. I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I still loved it, but I just couldn't do it anymore. It was too traumatizing, and I remember I remember the day it happened, and I remember how it happened. She was at the Inner Circle Pub in Avondale, and I just got home from sea, went down and saw her, and went, you know, sorry, we're done. And she just gave me a big hug, and she goes, I understand, and you know, that was it. Just mm-hmm. walked away on that one, and straight into the next
1: one. And Did I, married you, you guys them. have any kids from the first marriage? No? no, she
2: no. had a daughter. Right, right. <clears throat> uh, she was a lot older than me too. She was about eleven years older than yeah. I was. And then I uh, met my next wife, second wife, and we had three kids. And um, I'm on my third wife now. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so when did the comedy start? Did, where, did, you, so, did you find you sort of um, even subconsciously like honed that when you are in the Navy, like just cracking yeah, jokes in exactly front of That's exactly
2: what yeah. happened. So I was, I, I spent a lot of my time on the inter-island ferries. And so there was always a big audience. We had big crews there, and there was always a big audience. And I remember we used to crack jokes all the time. And then a friend of mine – this is a good story. I never told the story. A friend of mine uh, called uh, Max Wilby. Um, Max said to me, you know, you're a really funny guy. You should think about being a comedian. And I said, like, oh, don't be silly, Max. You know, I wouldn't even know how to do that. He said, well, what I'm thinking is every time you crack a joke – and people laugh. Write it in the book. Write it in the book. Write the punchline in the book. If you think of a funny thought, put it in the book. Put it in the book. And then when you go to write your comedy, if you're looking for a punchline, go to your book, and there'll be something funny in there. I did it the other way. What I what I did was I, you know, I still got the book, but in this thing, I would put all of these jokes and punchlines. And in, and instead of um, writing something to suit. I would go backwards. I would start with the punchline and go backwards. The big mistake I noticed when I first started comedy was comedians would start out with a shaggy dog story, and it would be a really good story. What does,
1: what does that mean, a shaggy dog story? Well, it means what you...
2: I've got a really great setup. It's like. I'm taking you down a street to show you a house and you're looking at all these fantastic houses and you go, oh, fuck, this is going to be you. And then you get down to the end of the street and yeah. it's an empty section. Yeah. And you're thinking, what the fuck you bring me down here for? <laughs> I always started with the flash house down the end of the street right. and worked my way backwards. And then if the shaggy dog story wasn't funny, I would always have funny to fall back on. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was my... So end with the high. End with the high, always. Right. So for me, my comedy career started out with a character. Who am I? Who am I? Well I'm the Maori boy so I'm going to use that. There are no Maori comedians. Jeremy Corbett, you know, John Bridges, David mm. Downs, yeah. all of these white willie DeWitt, wit, yeah. and Mark Wright, they're all white. So, so I'm I'm going to use that card and and yeah. I always, you know, so my persona, I love Eddie Murphy, I love Richard Pryor, so good suits are important, that look was important.
1: And Billy, Billy T. James, was he like a big influence? Were you like, oh, I, can, I can do that sort of shtick? Yeah, sort of no.
2: So you see, Billy was a musician. Yeah. And Billy used to tour around England. So, you know, he was playing in a lot of those cozy club type uh, arrangements. And so he watched a lot of English comedians. So he brought their jokes home, mm. you know. And, and true story when I was 15 at Altrovida, we turned into a cabaret. So Billy played at uh, our restaurant. Uh, Wednesday to Saturday, two shows a night. So I got to watch The Legend. I saw him up mm. close. I cooked his meal. I listened to the stories of him and Tui Taker and the show band. So I got to spend two years of my life. And this is two years before Radio Times even came out, Billy's first show. Right. So I got to see him in the beginning. And, and I've always been really resentful that every documentary that's been out about Billy, there's a whole lot of young comedians or comedians from my era who didn't know the man at all yeah, that were yeah. talking about him like they were experts. And I was just like, no one ever you asked even, me. You
1: never met the fuck. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So we
2: spent, you know, I spent a lot of time with the guy. I spent a lot of time with Tui Tecker. I remember when he was living in a flat in Mount Wellington, a shitty flat, and he had a Rolls Royce. Why? Because no other Maldives had a (laughs) roadie. You know, so we used to go around there and watch, you know, watch Tui get into his car and the seat automatically adjusts and Missy would get in. So, you know, I I worked as a roadie in these bands when, like, you know, I was the only one uh, at the restaurant that had a ute. The boys Mm. needed their gear. So they used to take me to the Crip nightclub. They'd take me to pubs when I'm 17 years old. Mm -hmm. It's 20 to get in. When the police came in, they'd hide me under the table. You know, i just, I, you know, i I had a really, really, really rich life yeah. where I got to, you know, spend. And I always felt like I was older than everybody else. You, do you know what I mean? Did you,
1: wait, the photo you showed me before of you in your 30s, you look very, you look younger than everyone else.
2: Yeah, but, but. I'd always associated with people older than okay. myself. Okay. I didn't, like, I just found that young people were dumb.
1: Well, people were, your same age.
2: Yeah, well, they were, you know, they were into girls, but, you know, girls were unavailable to me. I had no hair on my nuts, so, you know, I, I avoided girls. <laughs> that's, a, that's
1: a look now, that's yeah. a look.
2: <laughs> but, but, but I avoided, and i, I it's a true story. I remember saying to my dad at 17, I go, what the fuck is, go- what the fuck is going on, dad? <laughs> and he just laughed, and he goes, you'll thank me for that. You'll thank me for well, that. What, being a late bloomer? Yeah, being a late bloomer. How so? Well, because when I'm, th- you know, when I'm yeah, 33, yeah. I look, you know, yeah, I still look young, you know. Yeah. I was I, asked my age right up till I was in pubs, right up till I was 36 years old, you know. I'm 60, I think I'm a pretty good nick for a 60 Yeah, you year look old. great,
1: yeah. you look great. I was a late starter as well. I remember the first time I saw some wispy blonde pubes on my nuts. I was like 15 or 16. I was so excited. Oh, well, well, I tell you, this, <laughs> so thing, excited. this
2: is a true story. I remember... Anne McGregor, who said to me one time talking about that, I said, I got hair on my balls She would, she would, this is what she said. She went I about 15. She went, white ones.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <I was> <laughs> like, <laughs> how do you know? Oh,
1: yeah. How do you know? Okay, so, so the, um, so the comedy thing, you started quite late, eh? When did you do your first stand up set? Like uh, 30
2: something? 35, 35, 35,
1: That's a fucking late start. Uh, yeah, it is.
2: Why? A really late Why? Start.
1: What was it? Well, did you want to do it before and you were just nervous and you kept putting oh, it off? Oh, there was or? never any
2: opportunity, really. Okay. Um, so I broke my leg playing rugby. And um, I was, I saw a comedy advertised at, um, uh, there was a pub on. Um, Albert Street, I can forget the name of it. And I went in there and I watched these guys and, you know, eh, eh, lasted about half half an hour.
1: You're just sitting there thinking, I could do better.
2: Yeah, that was shit. Yeah, it
1: yeah. Was,
2: they, they were more vaudeville type, you know, um, magician type comedians. Okay, was and, it was
1: that just what people were doing at the time? Or? Uh,
2: yeah, a guy called Late Night Mike was there and, you know, it just, it, I was bought, I, I travelled overseas. We bought, you know, film of Richard Pryor, of Eddie Murphy, and so I, that was my style, of Bill Cosby, that was, so my style of comedy was stories about life, these guys were making up stories, so then um, I went to Kitty O'Brien's, I saw that there was a thing down there at Kitty O'Brien's, and I watched, and I watched, and I thought, these guys are so good, and I sneakily filmed, I had a had a bag, a camera, an old VHS camera. God, it must and, have been massive,
1: like a handy a, yeah, cam. <laughs> in a bag.
2: And I just sat my bag on my knee and I filmed. Not to steal material and yeah, go home and, and uh, it. break it down and find out why things weren't funny and why things were funny. And then I saw a guy called Andrew Clay. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Andy Clay is the fucking originator mm. of New Zealand stand-up. Never, ever, ever got credit. But he was the man that started comedy and music. Everyone else before Andy Clay was a fake-ass bitch. He was the man. Why? Because he told stories about life.
1: Is that about, right? I, 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 know, about, I, know, I know. I know Andrew. Like I met it, him through radio circles. He was at Holdecky for a really. About is that right?
2: Life. He he'd come back from Australia. He'd done the hard yards in the stand-up comedy scene in Australia and survived. He came back and talked about living with his grandmother in Selwyn Village and and you know like sneaking mm. out of the car and sneaking into her thing because you know young people couldn't live there he was a fucking genius and I went that's a stand-up comedian so the next uh I went home and I practiced the routine I was wasn't like everyone else I had two kids so I set up in my garage a couch and I had all their toys there and one of the big mistakes that people would ask is they would ask the audience a question and they'd only have one answer for the 90% answer so there's three answers an audience can give you the answer that everyone expects the out of the box answer and I'm an asshole I just want to destroy you answer and if you don't have a response for each one of those three you're dead in the water mm. so I used to little things that they would do that they'd have one great joke and they wouldn't walk and they would stay there for another extra ten minutes trying to get it back and never get it back so I just learned all of their mistakes and uh, so the next week uh, I had my little wee routine now.
1: How many minutes are we talking?
2: Like oh, five yeah. minutes, ten minutes? Ten minutes. So, ten minutes. but here was the deal, right? I studied. Mm. And so I took the Rolling Stones approach to comedy. So, uh, the,
1: lots of heroin. <laughs> no.
2: Well, no. <laughs> we'll get, so, we'll get to
1: the, Get to that. No. Later. <laughs> so the Rolling
2: Stones used to sing Chuck Berry covers. Right. Right. And then they'd, they'd throw in one or two original songs. So I went in with some joke jokes which I put myself in and so a set of three guys went me and a couple of mates were into right, this bar right. you know um, so I started out with, um, with lo- joke jokes with local references uh, and then I had a couple of original jokes and um, you know I got there and the, you know So I walked into the pub looking like Eddie Murphy, had my suit on, I was ready to go, said to Paul Horan, hey, uh, how do I get on the stage? (laughs) You come back in six weeks, we have a rookie night. And I go, who's on? And he ran through the list. I said, look, I've been watching you guys for the last six weeks. I think all your comedians are shit. I think I'm funnier than them. I pulled out 400 bucks out of my wallet. I said, here's $400. If no one laughs or anyone walks out, you can buy the whole bar drinks and you'll never see me again. He snatched the money out of my hand went out the back.
1: 400 bucks. So this was, um, let like, would say, 25, 25, 30 years ago. That's, yeah, a, that's, yeah. a, shit that's a shit
2: ton of cash. That's a shit ton of cash. Yeah, and yeah. I would have bought the whole bar drinks. Yeah. So uh, he went out the back and he must have said to them because they all poked their heads out the door and they were all <laughs> looking and they are all nodding. Yeah, put them on. Now, I was fully prepared to go first, right? Mm. This is how much I studied. I'm ready to go first. First was the hardest. Comedy wasn't a thing in New Zealand, but I was ready for it. Mm. David Downs come out and went, "So you're the new guy. I went, yeah, yeah. He says, where do you want to go in the lineup?" And in my head, I went, are you fucking shitting me? You're giving me the choice? Instantly, I said, last in the second. He went, tough slot. And I go, what the fuck do you know? This is how naive you are. So how it used to work was three comedians in the first, two in the second, and then the headliner. What used to happen, the three top com- first comedians had a hard time because no one knew what comedy was. Right, right. So I was trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. By the first break, that have all had beers, we get it now. So they're with the next guy that's come. Oh, okay. And the guy at the second, the last guy in the second got the easiest run. By the third, I've had more drinks. Now I'm funnier than you. Yeah, yeah. So I took, you know, thing in, uh, last in the second. So when it come time to be a packed house, when it comes time to me getting on, David Downs get up, say, hey, we've got this Maori guy who thinks he's funnier than everyone else. And everyone had killed up to that point. Mm. So the audience, Woo you know, don't worry, don't worry. You know, it's his first time. If he's if, if he's no good, we'll all laugh, which got a big laugh, yeah. you know. And if he's terrible, we'll start cheering and we'll start. And so everyone's right into it. And then, hey, here he is. So the first thing I did was I I put David Downs down straight away. <laughs> Bang. You know, Uh and then the... The South Africans were touring at the time, and it was the first time Chester, um, Chester Williams, the first black guy, was touring with yeah. them. So I had, you know, I had a joke using an accent, you know. Oh, Chester, see the South African, yeah, you know, Chester, yeah, but someone's got to carry the bags, and, you know, and people found that funny. It was racist, but it was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I moved into my joke jokes. But, I, you know, so the joke jokes was... was about me going to Shortland Street party. Everyone was short... I'm standing there at this party. I look over in the corner. There's Tim and Morrison and Paul Holmes standing under a coffee table.
3: Uh,
2: <laughs> uh, you know, oh, that's good. I saw Belinda Todd, who was big at the time. Yeah, I thought, yeah. wow, she's sexy. I said, hey Belinda, want to come back to uh, want to come back to my place, you know, for coffee, and then we'll make love. She was, Oh no I've got my menstrual cycle. I said, sweet, I got my ute outside. Chuck it on the back.
1: Oh <laughs> like, my god! Oh my god! You be for that now.
2: Yeah, I know. But so, and this was huge. So, yeah, like you know, and 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 I got to my second to last joke, and it fucking slayed. I had one more joke, but the second to last joke slayed, and I was like, "That's me." Hey, you've been great. Thanks very much. And I went off to the chance of more, 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 mm. more. Little did I know when I went up. And this is how fucking crazy my life is. Ben Elton had walked in as the MC was introducing me. Ben Elton, Young Ones, Black Adder. Uh, yeah,
1: now one of the massive authors, best yeah, selling yeah. authors. He's on England. a book tour. Shit.
2: And he comes in, he sees the intro, he sees me smash it, he comes out the back. I'm standing in a corner, I'm going, yeah, I fucking own this man. And Ben Elton comes over, he goes, oh, all right, you know, I just watch your gig, you know, is that your first time? He said, that can't be your first time. So we had this whether it was my first time. I said, I've done family, gigs, mate, if that was your first time. You're going to be famous.
3: Mm. And I was like,
2: holy shit, really? He goes, yeah, got to go. And he's out the back door. Wow. Everyone comes, what a Ben and say. I said, fucking Ben and say, I'm going to be famous.
1: Yeah, and, and you were, like, straight away. You, Metro Magazine uh, named you, like, a comedian of the year or whatever. Yeah, you yeah, were named yeah. New Zealand comedian yeah, of the yeah, year. Yeah, just, so the, the success happened really quickly.
2: Yeah, real yeah. quick. But I, like, so the boys would go, let's go out and let's do this. I practiced. I went, so I filmed that performance and every performance after Why? Because I wanted to know where I was making the mistakes. One of the things I used to do was I used to stroll backwards and forwards. I got seasick watching myself, you know. (laughs) Another thing that I used to do was rub my face. And so there's conscious things. And then another time, like, they didn't laugh at a joke that I thought was really funny. I watched the film back. I realized I'd stood on the punchline. Just when they're about to laugh, I panicked and went on to the next one. So I stood on my punchline. So I learned to consciously count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And then I had a tactic where that wasn't the joke. That was the lead-in. And then the real punchline comes second. So I studied and I studied and I studied. And I had, because I'd always done, you know, family gigs where the material always had to be new every week I would change it and Corbett used to come up to me and go hey man you, you know you can use that stuff from last week and I go "No, that's what you do man I'm fucking <laughs> you know this is <laughs> my arrogance right you needed that yeah. though I remember Paul Horan came up and gave me twenty dollars you know this night that I did my thing and he said you know I said, what's that for he goes no no that's that's your pay you're you were so great and I went no, you keep it, man. I want to own this shit. Mm. That's, you know, that, that was my arrogance. Yeah.
1: Did, um, did, did the others, were you popular with other comedians or were they like, oh, this guy's a jerk?
2: Yeah, probably.
1: Well, I, but I feel but like, I, I feel like you, a- you've probably got the cheek or the charisma to carry it off, but, uh.
2: Well, you know, I could be whatever I want because I was the best. You know, there was only one guy better than me, and that was Andrew Clay. Yeah. Andrew Clay. So what did I do? I'd watch other comedians go up to Andy and try to make friends with him. He was like, fuck off. I'm not teaching you anything. He immediately became my best friend. Immediately. And him and I did the first stand-up comedy tour around New Zealand. Mm. Him and I were just glued together. And I learned as much. I just... Got as much knowledge out of him as I could. Mm. I watched him. He was a pro man. I remember we did a gig down the line, and you know, he's opening, and there's a whole lot of fucking Maldives in the audience, and they started chanting, Fuck off, fuck
3: off, <laughs> fuck
2: off, fuck off. So he bought me, he bought mm. me on, and you know, and these guys are like, Oh, fuck it, and they started talking to the bar, and I'm like, True story. I, you know, you can please beep this, but I went, I shut the fuck up, you black cunts. And they cracked up laughing. <laughs> it
1: seems like oh, a, that's a high-risk manoeuvre. And,
2: and how and <laughs> yeah, this guy's fucking awesome. And Andy come running up and grabbed the microphone and said, hey, man, if i said that, you guys would have killed me. And this guy went, I thought we told you to
3: fuck off. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I did a killer <laughs> I did a killer half hour. Andy had done 10 minutes. We went up to get paid, and the publican says, I paid for one hour. This guy needed fucking 10 minutes. (laughs) And Andy went, well, get fucked. And he went back down, and he got on the microphone for exactly 20 minutes, copping shit. But he did his shit. That's a pro. And then when he came off, we went up, now give us our fucking money, we're out of Mm. here. You know,
1: I just I love Andy Clay. Yeah. Why, um, yeah, and, and it's um, it's good that you're 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 giving him the praise that that uh, he he deserves. Why why don't you think he was as successful as what he should have been?
2: Because he's a white guy. He's a white guy in in in, in, in a show where you know the stars of those of those times because they were all involved were Jeremy Corbett, John Bridges, David Downey. Yeah, oh, well, they're all white guys. And, yeah. They started the comedy. Right, right. So that there was no way they were going to let a, like, and I, I'm not saying this was a conscious yeah, decision. Yeah. This is not a conscious decision, but there was no way in hell another white guy was going to come along and take, you know, take their crown. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm not saying that they did it and they blocked them or anything, yeah. but, but, you know, they were the ones that were picked by TV, like, our first show on TV was a comedy gala, mm. and Andy was out there telling jokes, and um, I came out with a sign saying "Give back our land, honky," you know, <laughs> which you know, which was hilarious. Yeah. We we smashed it, um, but but because we were controversial, you know, we got cut from the show. We were the. know f- mm. oh, I'll say this without a fucking without without an ounce of fucking um, arrogance or anything. We were the best. Yeah, We smashed it. But I made a mistake. I went in, our first comedy gala. Willie DeWitt was mentoring me, and I love Willie for the fact that he helped me. And uh, I walked out the back. There was a guy called, um, he used to be... Um, Used to be Andy. Andy, uh, what's his name from TV? And said he still. He, he only just. Oh, Andy Shaw. Andy Shaw. Yeah, that's doing. right. He and, ended up being an executive. And he was holding court <laughs> yeah. in the in the civic in the dressing room, and all the comedians were there. And uh, I walked in and I said, "Hey, has anybody seen? Um, has anyone seen Willie DeWitt in the middle of an Andrew Shaw story?" And he went, "What the fuck?" And there was a sea of comedians. He goes... Who do you think you are? And I looked at and went, nice one, Stu.
1: Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I left. A reference
1: to Stu Dennison. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And
2: I, because they were competing, right, right. right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Stu was dressed as fucking guy from ACDC. You know, so yeah, a school uniform. Yeah, a yeah. Cat. So, uh, and I left, and I remember um none of the committee. They're all just, just all, oh fuck, we want to laugh, but this is our career. And so, I, <laughs> and I left, and Kevin Smith came up to me, and he went, Kingy, that's the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen. But that's going to ruin your career. And, but my attitude back then was, well, I don't give a fuck what these people think. I don't care what they think. I'm not looking for a career in television. You know, I'm a stand-up comedian, pure and mm. I say whatever the fuck I want to say. So that was always my attitude and we'll let the people decide. And it was the people that decided that I should be on TV. And that's
1: Yeah, the- ultimately like if if you've got enough um enough love from the public yeah. and enough heat around you, yeah. then even if an executive's got an ego issue and doesn't like you, they're going to have to like basically suck it up.
2: And it's a motto that I've taken yeah. through my whole career. You know, even even in mental health, you know, the same thing i'm blocked at every um, oh. at every avenue by academics clinicians and bureaucrats and, and government right i'm blocked at every avenue and as i keep saying to them you can have all the evidence based reports you can have mm. all the evaluated material you can have all the academics and all the clinicians and you can have all the money but without the people you ain't got yeah. shit so yeah. fuck you <laughs> so I, you well,
1: know, still defiant yeah. right No, what have you got to yeah, you know yeah. fuck
2: you your bureaucratic arrogance and it's the same with tvnz mm. you know the bureaucratic arrogance i remember true fucking story an executive at TVNZ told me that he made Billy T. James. trouble with you, Mike. You're like, Billy T. You don't listen. I made Billy T. James. When he came in here, he was me, me, me. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, so I went, went home, and, you know, internet was new but I downloaded a fucking script to Friends, and I changed the name from Rangi to Fetu to Wayne and and Daryl, and then I just changed the whole prop, and I took it, and I said, you know, he's talking to me, I said, I've got this fucking sitcom that I've written called Flatmates. Can you have a look (laughs) at it? And he read it, and he... So it has feet on ear and he threw it at me. And he went, you know, that is the most, you know, that's the reason that's those characters are unbelievable. Da, 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 da. And I pulled out the actual friend script, and I threw it on his desk, and I went, you just ripped apart the number one <laughs> comedy in the world. What the fuck do you know? And I walked out, and yeah. that was the target on uh, my back from that day. But I, I, I you, did, but I didn't give a fuck. Yeah. And you've got to have that I don't give a fuck attitude.
1: But where, where did that come from? Because um, by this stage you've, uh, you've got kids, you've got yeah, a mortgage.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: But See, I think that's, that's the thing. People with those commitments, it's like they need to give a little bit of a fuck. No, where I, did you no have, I
2: planned so I left the Merchant Navy. Uh, leaving the Merchant Navy allowed me to pay off my house, okay. and I had two years of reserve funding. Right. So I had two years to make this shit work. Good runway. You know, yeah. so I just, you know, and for me, I don't I don't put a toe in the water, Dom. I've never mm. put a toe in the water. I jump in both yeah, fucking feet. Yeah. I'm not scared of drowning, mm. you know, and I've done that through my whole life. You I, should have been.
1: You only just learned to swim. Yeah, I know, but, <laughs> I,
2: but that's me, you yeah. know. Uh, I think too often in this world, you know, people are dipping toes in and, Mm. you know, and and with our kids today, too many parents are working, put put 99% of their energy into the kid's plan B. Mm. And it's not their plan B, it's your plan B. You know, my plan B was being a chef, you know, and I had to wait till 34. I get it. I was lucky though. You know, I had... Like, I looked like a kid, so it didn't matter that I started at 34. And I had maturity in behind me. I still looked like a kid, but I had maturity. Yeah. So, and I'd had, you know, mongrel mob, merchant, navy, you know. Like, I had all of these, all of these life's experiences that I could call on. Yeah,
1: and been through, like, a marriage breakup by then as well. would say. I
2: was married to a lesbian woman who used to sleep with other men and other girls, you know. <sighs> She'd bring other girls home and make me sleep in the bedroom while they sleep, you know. So I had all of this, you know, m- my heart had been broken so many times. I- I've never felt like I was good enough. I've always had a massive inner critic telling mm. me I had him uh, you know. I've lived with imposter syndrome my mm. whole life.
1: It's funny you say that. I- I've got the same thing as well. And I watched a um, uh, uh, David Letterman thing on Netflix the other day. Billy Eilish, she's got it as well. well I, I, it's I, feel, a, I feel like it's a, it's, a, it's a Kiwi thing as well, no. to a degree. No,
2: no, no. The biggest problem facing the world's young people today is an overactive inner critic, self-doubt. But what makes it so horrific is they're living in a world where everyone's got their mask on and pretending they've got their shit together. There is no vulnerability in the world. And I knew eight, nine, ten years ago that the new language of life is vulnerability. Vulnerability, yeah. truth, and vulnerability is what is missing uh, in life. I've been on about this since two thousand and eight, just sharing my story of, of thing and then.
1: Yeah, having, so was it like yeah, it was two thousand and six where you first came out and said you you suffered depression? Yeah, yeah. Which was um. Well, by the way, we've been talking for fifteen minutes, and we have, we've we've. <laughs> We, we haven't even scraped the fucking surface.
2: Uh, part one of the <laughs> Mike King podcast.
1: Yeah. Um, but in this podcast, yeah, I, I, I ask people about their mental health. And I've had, like, so many messages from people saying, hey, it's it's good that you're talking about this. And I'm like, fuck, no, it's not. Like, it's... Yeah. Kirwan was doing this 30 yeah. years ago. Yeah. You've been doing yeah. it for... Yeah, it's But the nothing. biggest
2: problem facing people today is an overactive inner critic, imposter syndrome. Yeah. We've all got self-doubt. But what makes it worse is everyone's wearing their masks and pretending they've got their shit together... And everyone's looking at everyone else thinking they've got it all together, yeah. and I'm, so they're in a crazy, "I'm the only one, I'm the only one that 's what our kids are living with yeah, so if yeah. you're constantly being reminded of your flaws, if you're constantly being told what you do, and you are not seeing any vulnerability. You're not hearing any messages um of, you know, struggle. And the only time you hear those messages of struggle is when you mention you're struggling. Mm. You know, oh I know what it's like. Yeah, Dom. Hey, plenty of other fish in the sea, mate. Oh, I had lost my first love too. Here, let me tell you the story. Yeah. What you think you're saying is this is a universal experience. Mm. What our kids are hearing is, oh shit. So I start talking about me, and you make it all about you. Yeah. And you came out the other side. You're you're useless. Mm. You're hopeless. Everyone's better than yeah. you. This has created the most toxic environment, you know that that there's ever been in the mental health sector. Yeah. And and my generation blame young people. They blame they blame social media. They see it's human nature to blame everything around, oh, this is what happened and that's what happened. Someone kills themselves because the girlfriend broke up. The girl, So it's the girlfriend's fault. No, it's not. That's just the straw that broke yeah. the camel's yeah, back. Yeah. There is a whole lot of laughs. And this is what we do, though. We focus on the behavior. I, I was down in Otago University yesterday talking to a professor that I want some help with. on, on And he, he, he was doing a study. And he wanted to know the effects of job loss, relationship breakups on, on suicide. And I had to tell him, dude, you're missing the reason people are taking their lives. It's not an impulsive act. This one thing, that, that wasn't the re- That was just the final straw. Imagine this. You're a kid. You're a young boy. You've never felt valued. You've never felt like anyone cares. You're always you're looking at yourself physically and go, fucking no one's ever going to love me. I'm a loser. You get your first girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, this girl loves me. But now you start thinking, what if she leaves me? Mm-hmm. So suddenly, where are you going? What are you going there for? I want to come too. I want to be with you. All the, You become a power stuck to the rock. Mm-hmm. You're so clingy that this girl goes, <laughs> fuck, I can't handle this, I can't breathe, yeah. and yeah. she leaves. So now you're going, well, that's it. I you're knew never going to get it. Yeah. Bam, I'm gone. You know, and then we go, it's about to kill. No, that is just the final thing. It's the build-up. The single thing behind the majority of suicides is an overactive inner critic. Mm. Tell me this. Do you think... Robin Williams was sitting in his room in the last minutes going, wow, I'm having such a great day. Billions of people love me. What can I do? I know I'll kill myself. I guarantee yeah. you he was sitting there and having the same conversation that everyone has. Everyone would be better off without you. You're a burden to everyone. You know, all of these little things, you're better off gone. And we did a study on this using, using letters that the Ministry of Health ignored. Three big things that we got out of our study was those who ended their life through suicide didn't want to die. Yeah. They wanted their pain to end. They couldn't live with the pain. One, the majority knew that they were loved, but love wasn't enough. Yeah. And the majority felt like they were a burden and everyone would be better off without them. And finally... It, was an impulse, it wasn't an impulsive act. The overwhelming majority of people had long-term issues that they either never discussed with anybody for fear of rejection, uh, they s- couldn't find the help that they needed, they got the help but it came too late, or the help that was offered wasn't going to yeah. help them.
1: Hey, so, so what you were saying about the um, internal voice thing, and I fully agree with you. It's like the biggest bully I've got in my life is, yeah. is me.
2: You would never let anyone talk to you the Fuck way you no. talk to you, talk yourself, right?
1: But it makes, it makes absolutely no sense. But uh, how, do you, how do you fix that? How do you stop that? What's you the solution?
2: normalise it. So I am hopeful. What we do in schools is we normalize the inner critic, but we don't take a prescriptive approach. We don't walk into schools and go, this is what you're doing, this is what you need to do to fix it. That's what everyone does. So we use a descriptive approach. We talk about our demons growing up. We allow young people to recognize themselves in our story and we show them how many people, you know, go through it. So I might share a story about, you know, not being able to take a compliment. Someone come around and compliment me on a painting. Oh bro, who painted the wall? Yeah, well, I painted the wall, you know, trying to play. Mm, yeah, I painted the wall. Yeah. What's it mean? Fah, oh, bro, I didn't know you was a painter. Man, <laughs> you you, you could do that professionally, bro. And all I'm thinking is, yeah, but I didn't cut it in properly over there. The colours don't match there. I should have sanded that back better. It's a shit paint job. I'm a shit painter. And then I'll go, how many of you kids think like that? Hands up. Don't look. Just look at me. Hands up. And all the hands go up. I said, now, look around. Look around. And the next sound you hear is a room full of kids go.
3: Holy,
2: look at all these. Look, look. So we normalize it. Yeah. And I said, so look how many people have this, but you never admitted it till today, have yeah. you? No one has ever admitted it. Everyone struggles. I remember going into a school. And so we just use the hands up, hands up. And now look around, look around, look around. And we normalize the inner critic. Um, I had a, uh, I did a school. A teacher said, "I got a Maori boy here, country school. I've got a Maori boy here. He's very angry. Can you talk to him?" So I went to talk to him. Hey man, how's it going? <laughs> I'm alright. Go, yeah, cool, bro, Cool, cool, cool. Oh well, Good to see you, my bro. And you know, I might have a chat with you after the. Come and listen to the talk. You might find it interesting. You might not. I don't care. So I went up on stage and I told the story and I did my thing. And at the end of the talk, this Maori boy comes up right and he's beaming. I say, hey, hot shot, what happened to you, man? You look happy. He goes, man, it's so cool to know I'm not the only one that's fucked in the head. <laughs> and that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, if you know everyone else is struggling but they're faking it, the load gets lifted mm. off. So, the inner critic and the voice of reason. Uh, The two things, two constant in every human's life, right? But the voice of, so the inner critic used to keep us safe. Because if you didn't have an inner critic, if you didn't have this doubt, you'd walk up, oh, there's a lovely dinosaur. Holy (laughs) shit, it's eating me, right? So it used to, it warned you of danger, right? right. But when there is no danger, it turns on you. Mm. And it makes things dangerous. So the inner critic should be 30-70. 30% inner critic, 70% voice of reason. I can tell you now factually that the inner critic controls 95% of our life and only 5% is the voice of reason. The voice of reason has quieted down because we're all riddled with self-doubt and we're all seeing this perfection and we think it's only us. 80% of suicidal kids never ask for help. And the reason they never ask for help is because they're worried about what society's going to think, say, or do, and they're worried about disappointing their parents. That's the number one thing. Kids are, I'm worried about disappointing my oh. parents' Sacrificed everything. They've worked two jobs. they built a factory with their bare hands when they were eight years <laughs> old. And, you know, they've given me everything, you and know? I don't want to go back to them and, and disappoint them. Yeah. So fourth thing, they're worried about what everyone's going to think, say, or do. And they're worried about disappointing people. What's our message to those kids? Hey, if you're in trouble, reach out and ask for help. That's an oxymoron. Mm. That's stupid. Why do we continue to put pressure on our most vulnerable to make the first move?
1: Yeah, that's, it's funny you bring that up because that's something I've always thought. It's like Everyone says, hey, if you ever need to reach out, just call me anytime, day or night. But that's, put, that's putting the onus on the on, sick person. Yeah,
2: that's right. Why do we, you know, what the question needs to be is everyone needs to go home, look in the mirror, and ask yourself, what are you doing to make it easy for your friends and kids to ask for help? If you haven't had a mate come to you in the last six months crying Talking about his feelings, not my kids are assholes and ungrateful shits mm. and my wife's a bitch. Actually, talking about feelings. If you haven't had a kid come to you and talk about their feelings, you're the problem. You're the problem. Mm. And not because you're a bad person, but you're just someone that I feel I can't talk to because you're too perfect. Mm. You know, and, 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 and making yourself available to people isn't this dude. Hey guys, if you're feeling suicidal, <laughs> you can come to me. I'm there 24 seven. Making yourself available is making yourself vulnerable. Mm. Yeah. Sharing. When you get home from, from work, your kids know that you've had a shit day they know something's on your mind but if you don't share that with them if you don't share the reason for that with them they'll make it about themselves everything is about you so you get home from work your kid says hey dad how's your day fuck my day was shit give me a fucking beer I'm on the couch right now your kid's walking to the fridge going what the hell did you do to dad? You must have done something dad. You're always pissing dad off. Oh, you know, man. as soon as he saw you, he was pissed off. But if you got home and go, son, I had the shittiest day. I yelled at one of my employees or one of my co workers. I made a real dick of myself. Oh, man. I don't know what to say to that guy when I get there tomorrow. But, dude, thank you for noticing. Yeah. Thank you for being there for me, man. Give me a hug. I love you now go to the fridge, get me a beer, I'll be on the couch. And your kid's going to walk to the fridge and he's going to be going, I fucking helped my dad. Mm, mm. I was there for my dad. You know, and it's a complete, and that builds that self-esteem, that sense of value, Mm. right? So every kid in New Zealand should feel good about themselves. They should feel, when they walk into a room, they should feel appreciated by their friends. They should feel loved by their families. Sadly, we've got kids out there who don't feel like good about themselves. They feel like nobody respects them and no one cares. And as a result of those two things, they shut down from their family and their relationship is shit. So we need to rebuild from the ground up. And in order for that to happen... My generation has to change. Mm. I'm sick of people coming up to me and saying, what's wrong with these kids these days? This is the greatest generation of kids in the history of the world. They have more empathy, more sympathy. They have more um, uh, great ideas. They have more caring than any other generation in the history of the world. We are fucking them up with our old school, you know, protect, provide, give your kids a better opportunity and never yeah. show weakness. Yeah. And we need to change. Mm. Stop telling kids what to do. Start showing them what to do.
3: Yeah.
1: Jeez, oh my God. We, we've been talking for an hour. Have you anywhere to be? Or, no. No? Okay, cool, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this chat. There's still so much more to... Shit, you've done the work, are you? have done... With um, with your comedy, you did the work and you got very good and, and now I can tell you've like put the same energy and enthusiasm into well, the so stuff. Well, so what I you've did... The, look,
2: but I did what everyone else... I didn't learn in books... <laughs> In the in the last ten years, I've spoken to nearly three hundred thousand yeah. kids personally. When they contact you, it's a genuine contact. I give my number out to corporates, and I get wankers trying to sell me shit. You know, <laughs> these kids are genuinely there, and nine out of ten times, it's concern for someone else. Yeah, you know, I got a friend who's this, and I got a friend who's that, uh, or it's about themselves, and they just need reassurance that you know one there is someone there, and two, that their thoughts are normal. So I've been out, I've done the yards, and everything I say is not my opinion. This is what kids are telling me. And so when I your people, well, that's your opinion. No, actually, it's not my opinion. You're just passing on feedback. This is what your kids are telling me. Well, I disagree. Well, that's like saying, dude, I've just told you I like Kentucky Fried Chicken. And you've gone, (laughs) I disagree. (laughs) You know, and I said... Everyone
1: yeah, likes K-Fried. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 of you, course. You
2: can't disagree with this. Yeah. You can't disagree with a fact. Excuse You're a busy me. man, Dom. You're a busy um,
1: man. Yeah, so you came out and um, said you suffered from depression in 2006. Do you think um, it had been there your whole life? You were an angry dude for a while. Yeah. Was it? Was was that just your way of, like, projecting the depression?
2: Well, yeah, yeah, of course. So when I got famous... You know, that was supposed to change my life. I always thought fame and fortune was the ultimate goal, yeah. being world best at whatever it is, right? And in my mind, I, you know, I expected that, that moment was going to be big. It was, it was like these these two gates would open, golden gates would open. There'd be a ticker tape parade. <laughs> the king had arrived. There, yeah, and, <laughs> you know, people would be throwing confetti and singing your name, girls would be throwing <laughs> Mm. It was going to (laughs) be, it was the ultimate, right? It's like winning the lotto. A billion to one shot, and I fucking got it. I was Mm. the first. And then these gates opened, and there was my big head going, you're still a fucking loser. You should be flipping burgers. Mm. And for me, when when your whole life had been set for this moment and it didn't pan out, for me, that's when my inner critic got really loud, and it was constantly taunting me. And that's when the drug and alcohol use took over.
1: Yeah, out, so you, out, you 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 loved your cocaine. Okay.
2: I love my co- so, I, so. I started a travel agency, Dom. When Coke was in <laughs> yeah. short supply in New Zealand, just so I could fly around the world yeah. when it ran out. How crazy is that shit?
1: So I'm, I'm guessing like it, it started as um like like a fun thing. So you you do a show, whatever, have, have a have a bag of gear, and then. Uh, uh,
2: so the first time I tried Coke was in '96. Right, 1996. Um, I was at a gig in Monaco. I was with another American comedian called Todd Hanford and we just finished this gig and a guy came over and he shook my hand and said, that was amazing and he palmed me some gear, right? Mm, Now, lots of people have been palming me gear. It was usually always weed. And so I got this thing and I went into the toilet and it was a block of Coke. And I didn't know really what Coke was, so I said to my American comedian, hey man, what's this here? hey, hey,
3: hey, 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 hey,
2: so he dropped down the toilet seat and he lined us up two lines and I smashed my line and then I immediately vomited, like, you know, just fucking, whoa, what the fuck is happening? And I threw up. And everything that I've become addicted to in my life, alcohol I threw up, cigarettes I threw up, coke i threw up right so i thought i'll never get addicted to this shit what a fucking if this is what this shit is uh. i'm out as soon as i walked out into the into back into the the bar every single conversation in this place was crystal clear to me i could hear different groups talking there was a group of university students who just lost a friend of theirs. There was uh, another group of people that were going to get married. But I could hear every conversation. These university students were were talking about some scientific thing. And out of my ring binder of memories something popped up that was associated. So I was able to enjoy the conversation. And these people were like, holy shit, you're a whole lot more intelligent. But when I talked to the people, I just lost. So my empathy level was right there. I could reach the level of every single one. And it was like magic. For a comedian to be that connected with people in the room, that was like the ultimate.
1: It, so you felt like it made you a better person immediately, like it gave huge, you huge. Yeah. Of course, It turns a lot of people into a dick, like they're, they're just. Like and it does eventually. Conversation hogs,
2: and it do, and yeah. it does eventually, and that's exactly what happened. You know, after years of use, of course, that's what happened. So, and then in nineteen ninety seven, maybe eight months later, um, I end up going to London. And spending six months on the uh, six or eight weeks on the scene up there, and same thing. I did a gig, and a skeezer come up to me afterwards. Yeah, All right. if you ever need, like you know, the rings, the whole nine yards, yeah, the yeah, two yeah. floozies. He was a local drug dealer. Whatever you need, whenever you need it, you give me a call. That was the funniest thing I've seen. So for the next six weeks, I was in coke heaven. I didn't have to pay, but it was right, only fifty right. quid. Yeah, fifty quid a gram, you know. So and it was the real deal, mm. not like the shit that they were selling back here. <laughs> and um, so for me, that was it, you know. And then I ended up in Vegas, and yeah, I yeah.
1: So, and we, so when did when did it stop being stop being fun and? Like, start being a chore or...
2: It never stopped being fun. (laughs) It never, ever stopped being fun. Yeah, but... um,
1: But... Okay.
2: I knew it was destroying me. Yeah. I knew it was destroying me. I knew, you know, the stage of my career, you know, I was a bit like 660. You know, I'd done all the town hall Mm. tours. You can only do town halls. You can only play Eden Park a certain amount of times. And then the rooms get smaller Mm. You know, I, I, the first town hall tour I ever did was in 2000 with Radar. You know, we sold out, you know, the St. James Theatre fucking twice. Yeah. Not once, twice. You know, we were playing every major town hall in the country, mm. you know. Like, I had that much money, I you know, like – on this tour, I used to get my manager to come and pick up a fucking briefcase of cash and take it yeah, home, you know. wow. It was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous time, you know. I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I start out with, you know, an hour of material. I get home with three hours of material because so many things were happening and the coke was flowing, so ideas were flowing. And I was just living and breathing comedy 24-7, Um but the room started getting smaller, and you yeah, know, and yeah. The, the, the the cost of the coke was getting higher and higher <laughs> and higher, and I, you know, and I was, beca- you know, when you're worrying about finances, you end up being an asshole, mm. you know, and you're blaming everybody else, and you know, young ones were coming up, and then the then the um, the fucking newsboy thing started, you know. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. So now that you bring that, like most people wouldn't wouldn't remember that, but um. So uh, there was a sketch on like eating media lunch or yeah. one of the one of the and, and news that show shows.
2: wasn't fucking rating at all. Right, there was no. It was rating. a niche. It was a niche yeah. sort of show, not a mainstream a 10, show. Yeah, it was on a ten thirty at night, and there was a uh, a dog that was Mike King, and he was snorting fucking or smoking pee or something, and of course I was. But, of course, I went into denial saying, how fucking dare you? Like, you've crossed the line.
1: Yeah, so you, you left f- a voicemail message saying... Yeah, yeah, you, you, no, you, I left you, it on a mate's phone. Right.
2: I left. You tell your fucked up friend <laughs> that he's fucking with the wrong guy. <laughs> Who the... But for, for me, right, I'm old yeah, school. Yeah, I'm old school. Yeah. You don't knock on people, you know. You just fucking... You do the lag, you know. So, oh, But, you know, these new kids, they don't give a fuck. So he passed it on to uh, Jeremy Wells, and Jeremy posted it up. And at the, like I, you know, I was it was, clear, big, it was a big
1: deal at the time. Well, I was,
2: here's my fucking phone number, call me, can yeah, you know. And I put my phone number on there, and he fucking he didn't take the phone number off, and he broadcasted it, mm. and that basically. Launched his career,
1: mm.
2: you know, and you know, if I'm being honest, I'm still a little resentful of that. Really? You know, yeah. yeah.
1: Have you se- Have you seen Jeremy? Yeah, or yeah, Jeremy? yeah, I have.
2: I've learned from the experience, and I've told him. You know, it's probably the best thing that could have happened yeah. to me. Yeah. But I'm still old school. You know what it's like. You've been in radio. Yeah. You yeah. know, you've had people come up to you go, Ah, dumb fucking don't like you you
1: know, <laughs> you know yeah, I never fucking like I don't listen
2: lot. I don't listen to your shit yeah. you know my response to that thank you
1: yeah
2: what I've just fucking told you you're an asshole. thank you mm-hmm. well, what, what do you mean? I said I'm just thankful I gave you the opportunity to get that off your chest.
3: Now you don't have to carry it
2: around anymore. I'm an asshole. Guess what? I think I'm an asshole sometimes too. Yeah,
1: so. we talked about the the inner critic before. It's like you think I'm an asshole. You could never think yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, an asshole yeah, that I think right. of myself. That's right. So. Um, the Jeremy Wells thing, like that that angry message was was part of that. You like your depression? Do you think? Your, no, because angry and didn't know how to. No, no, it or? wasn't. Had nothing nah, to do with nah, it. Okay. he
2: told the world the truth. <laughs> I was a fucking drug addict. I thought I had it well hidden. But I was a fucking drug yeah. addict, and he outed me to the world. He broke the code. He knocked on me to the world. He, and, and that's what, like, I'm still in the mongrel mob mentality. You know, you knock, you fucking die. Yeah, that yeah. was my, you know, that was my. So he told the truth, mm. and I was in denial. You know, and at the t- you know, so at the time, that's what hurt, mm. is he told the truth, and I wasn't ready to face the truth, mm. and that's what made me angry, and so I went straight into denial mode, and I went straight into attack mode, which has always been, you know how, how I've operated.
1: You sort of fight your way out of things, or oh, you, of retaliate. Yeah, yeah let's yeah.
2: find this alleyway, dude, and let's sort <laughs> this out. You know, that, that was. That's my mentality. Yeah, and and the irony is, you know, he'd probably give me a fucking good hiding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It needs some rules like just no, no face punches. <laughs> okay, so um, you said before like um, you bought a travel agency. Yeah, uh, Travel the, King. Trave, oh, really?
2: You're travelling in the right company. Well, so, you
3: know,
2: our, <laughs> our logo was a Playboy bunny smoking a cigar. Right. You know. You notice I'm just. I'm I'm pinching my nose as we talk about (laughs) this. bringing back memories. I'm just like, hey, yeah. But that was just a time. That that was a time. Am I proud of that time in my life? Um, Not not really. Would I change it? No, it gave me legitimate experiences. Mm. You know, you can't, you know, other people would read about this shit in a book and then speak like experts. You've got to live it, man. Yeah.
1: And I suppose all these all these experiences brought you to where you are and the man you are That's today. Right. That's right. But, um, so, so through this travel agency, you ended up um, – where were you? You were in a hotel somewhere, Hong Kong or something. Yeah, I was
2: in a Hong, Hong, Hong Kong hotel. Yeah. So what happened was I had – in 2007, yeah. um, I had a massive stroke. I was over... That's
1: in Melbourne. You are in Melbourne. Uh, Melbourne. I yeah. was playing
2: in the Aussie Millions Poker Tournament, $10,500 entry yeah. fee. I was taking a shit. Uh, <laughs> I had a massive stroke and my mate saved my life. Mm. Um, I had locked-in syndrome, so I was a complete fucking dribbler. Um, on the stroke... Uh, how long? Not that long, maybe eight hours, but it was a lifetime. Ah, terrifying. Yeah, so... Um, I have locked-in syndrome. I can hear everything. I can understand what everyone's saying. I can converse in my head. But the only thing coming out of my mouth was dribble my eyes. My face had dropped the whole the whole nine yards. And so um, I have this stroke. I go to the hospital. I hear the doctor saying, you know, like, hey, where's his wife? My mate said she's on her way. Good. Uh, she, he said she'll be here this afternoon. He goes, too late. he got four hours to get this thrombolyzing drug in him and um, and my mate said, I'll give you permission. He goes, nah, because if we give him, he could die. So either he gives us permission or his wife gives us permission.
1: So you, could, you couldn't even give the thumbs up or anything? Oh, in
2: my head I'm going, give me the fucking, yeah. give me the drug, give me the drug. So um, my mate grabbed my head and started yelling at the mad butcher, you know, like, come on, mate, come on, mate, and, and it registered. And his breath stunk. I'll never forget that. Like you know, like he hadn't brushed his teeth. He hadn't done anything, you know. Like and his breath. You know, like, fucking Richie, your breath stinks. And he got me out. It took me half an hour to actually formulate mm-hmm. words. And the first sentence out of my hair, uh, out of my mouth, was, "Give me the drug." And the guy went, give me the fucking drug. You know, I tried to get up off the table to show him that I was, no, no, Say there, you've got the drug, you've got the drug. But we need to do a CAT scan first. So they put me in the machine, and I had another stroke in the machine. Now, that was terrifying. It's like you're nearly drowning, you're about to be pulled into the boat, and someone goes, nah, and pushes you back under the water.
1: What, what does the stroke feel like?
2: Uh, it feels like, for me, it's different for people. Some people have pain. But for me, it was like, you know when you stand up too quick, mm-hmm. and then you get that, whoa, that... And you're in a permanent state of, whoa, Mm. and you're waiting for it to clear, and it just doesn't. Yeah, And you're just sitting there, and so you're living in this kind of echoey world. I can hear everyone again, and the nurse has been talking to me, and I've been talking back to her. And then she pulled me out, and she went, oh, I wondered where you've gone. You've You've had another stroke. And they took me into the other room, and the doc said, well, we can't give him the drug. And my mate looked at the doctor and went, he gave you fucking permission. I was here. He, he go, all right, I'll fucking give him the drug. So he gave me the drug, and, and I came out of it. So like That's as close
1: to death as anyone would want to get.
2: Uh, what was terrifying wasn't the oh. thought of death. What was terrifying when I was lying there in the second stroke, it was like... Someone's going to have to wipe my ass for the rest of my life. Mm. Someone is going to have to fucking spoon feed me baby food mm. for the rest of my life. So when I came out of the stroke for the second time, um, I grabbed my mate's shirt, I pulled him down, and I said, if I go back, pillow me. Mm. And it was all a phase. you think he would done, have done that for me. No, well, either? here's the thing. I got home six weeks, you know, six weeks later I invite Richie and his wife up and my mind's still a blur, you know, and I pull him out to the garage and I didn't know if I'd said it or not. Mm. And I said to Rich, in the garage having a beer, and I said, did I say anything to you when I was in Melbourne? again? no, no, oh, why? He goes, I just thought I'd said something. Obviously I just imagined it. And he goes, oh, yeah, no okay, I never said anything, he goes, what, Pillow me, (laughs) and I was like, fuck, I did say it, he goes, yeah, Yeah. and I go, would you, he goes, well, we'll never know, will we, and I was like, you know, I was like, oh, fuck, but, and then I spent the next two years in a fog, but I vowed to give up, I vowed to give up drugs, you know, and I, I was committed two days out of hospital with my, with my poker mates you know, come to the toilets for four, we've got a line for you. I've just had a fucking stroke, man. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to have that. And yeah. I was determined. The uh, then I got home and I had a uh, block of coke in the house, I called Titanic. It was fucking <laughs> like an ice beer. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: it was fucking, and it was pure. And um, I could hear it calling me as I'm, you know, driving home. I'm not supposed to be dri- I drive home. Yeah. Uh drive down the driveway, and I started chopping up. And, um... It's
1: remarkable. You think, like, a, like a near-death experience like that, that'd, that'd be enough to ski you well, straight?
2: No, that's what... That's the hold it had on me. Oh. So I get... Uh, so, so... Then I was... Uh, when Titanic ran out, I was able to give up. <laughs> I was able to give How up. How many
1: grams was Titanic? What do you reckon?
2: Oh, she would have been... Oh, close to an ounce.
1: Right. How many grams were in an ounce? Uh... Have to excuse my ignorance here. Uh,
2: 32.
1: Fuck so th- this is so like ten grand worth.
2: Yeah, easy. Fucking easy. hell, and not chopped either. So right, right. it was like you know they started chopping it all up when we got back. Mm. Titanic was massive. <laughs> yeah. So um so anyway um I gave up for three weeks mm. and then I had a tour to the Hong Kong Seven. So I'd mm. given up drinking cigarettes and. Um, and thing and I was on the straight and narrow and my voice of reason go yeah Mikey we've got this we've got this and the inner critic was yelling but nah the voice of reason and so I get over to what's the name there's lots of alcohol you know I'm on a travel king tour so we've got a whole lot of expectant people I get everyone sorted out I sit some more and I refuse to go to the game Mm -hmm. I can't go to the game because I'll start so I'm in uh, Wan Chai which is the, you know, the, the big party place.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and I'm in Wan Chai, and I'm just aimlessly wandering around. And a Maori boy comes walking down the street. Brother, hey, Mikey, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, man, I'm just wandering around. Got a team here. To You're not going to the sevens? No, nah, I'm bored with footy. He goes, let's go have a beer, bro. And I'm like, man, I just gave up. And he said these words. I'll never forget it. You've given up in New Zealand, bro. <laughs> and I went
0: Fuck,
2: you're right. Straight in, I'll have a Heineken, he went at a Heineken. First fellow <laughs> walk past, could I have one of those fucking cigarettes? Puffing away, puffing away, and then I'm straight into my dealer go, Hey, how are you?
1: How do you how do you have a dealer do you just have a dealer in every I country? Right, right. right. You
2: know, and
1: Hong I, Kong sounds like a dangerous place to be doing class A gear.
2: No, it's very right. safe. Yeah. You know, it's like, in terms of
1: the penalty if you get caught, or yeah, but you know,
2: the people you buy off are basically buying the police off. So right, okay, you know, so I get him and uh, I get half an ounce of coke because I've been waiting for your call. What's been happening? Da da da, and I like, just just fucking drop me the gear, would you? So and then I went back to my hotel and then I started snorting and then I got really fucking angry with myself. I couldn't you let yourself lie. down. Yeah, you couldn't fucking and. You know, and I just started snorting and then, you know, I just wanted to die. And I didn't want to hang myself or OD on anything else because that would affect my family. But in my head, it made sense that my king rock and roller went out ODing on on coke. Yeah, it's like a real balushy way to go out, isn't it? So I just snorted everything that I could and passed out on the floor.
1: And, um, so in a, in a way, it was a, like a, it was kind of a suicide. That was a
2: suicide. Now I wanted to die. I, right. that, that was my plan. I was just going to die, you know. I've just snored enough coke to kill me, you know. And, you know, half an ounce is a pretty good job, mm. you know. You, you, more than enough to die. Yeah. Um, and I passed out. And when I was passed out, my then eight-year-old daughter magically appeared sitting on my chest going, what are you doing, Dad? Why are you doing this? We need you at home. You shouldn't be doing this. And it was like she was fucking right there. Mm. And um, I woke up and I went, what the fuck? I flushed what I had left of the cocaine down the toilet, uh, rang in New Zealand, booked a flight back home and got off the plane. I fell out of the plane on April 1st, 2007, and haven't picked up since. Wow. Yeah, just, so I gave up drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes on the same day, and just gone through 15 years.
1: Your life's been miserable ever since No, no, no. People
2: people (laughs) used to say to me in those years, coming back, and they go, you know, uh, you look great. Yeah, I look great on the outside. I feel like shit on the inside. (laughs) When I was with the coke, I looked fucking shit on the outside, but I felt fucking great Mm. on the inside. Uh, but it's been a journey. It's been really, yeah. really, really hard, you know. Oh, I, and, I, I suppose now. And, my, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a guy that protects myself. So when I was doing comedy, everyone goes, you treat your wife like a fishwife. No, uh, I'm protecting myself. You know, um, if I sleep with one woman, I've got to sleep with a 1,000. So I made it very clear in my comedy that I was married because I didn't want to fall into that trap. Right. So when I... Well, you mean in
1: terms of your addictive personality? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a protection. So I'd be sitting in in bars with a woman and people come up and go, that's not your wife. Who's this? It's actually my sister-in-law. Here's my wife coming. Oh, sorry, Mike. I did. You know, so it was designed to keep me safe. Um, and so then coming out about my drug addiction was the next logical step. It was always designed to keep me safe. Yeah, okay. I had no plan. It was just like, if you're going to do this, this is what we're going to do. And then I had a whole lot of people watching for me. If I went to the toilet, people would magically appear, just thought you were coming in for a chop <laughs> <play>, mate. Hey!
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, so, you know.
1: So have, have you been offered it since?
2: Oh, heaps. Yeah, and... and... Come
1: on, bro, it's just Mm. us,
2: mean. two sides, you can have one, come on, bro.
1: No desire anymore? Oh, the desire never
2: goes, it never goes, right? I always thought, Dom, that I could go back and uh, have a beer, you know. And last Christmas, I discovered Heineken Zero. I knocked off that first box in about 20 minutes. <laughs>
1: Seriously,
2: and then the next day I was another box, and the next day I was another box.
1: Yeah, and, yeah,
2: you know, my wife went.
1: But yeah, you be why well, Heineken Zero? Like it, it tastes the same as normal Heineken, yeah, but you're, you're not getting any bu- any kick out of it, any it buzz.
2: Just remind. Right, the first time I drank the box, I got faux drunk. My wife says, "You know, you're getting louder." No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I got fucking faux drunk. Yeah, you know, because yeah. I hadn't, and it was, um, you know, in the end after a few days my wife said you can't do this you know like look at you you just fucking go nuts mm. on this shit so we had a rule for every hour of yard work that i did um i was allowed a beer so that's when i started gardening 24 hours a day <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, but, it's two in the morning where's Mike
2: oh <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the garden no! now so I've just you know I've just uh, you know I've given it up again, yeah, you know, I yeah. Just, but it, it was a happy reminder like you know the thing that I miss the most out of everything cigarettes is that so I yeah. love cigarettes like I love the smell of cigarettes All of you, I hate the smell of it, mate. I, I, well fuck you I love it mm. You know, like, people get in my car, you know, and smoke. Fuck it, light up, blow that shit on me. I love that shit.
1: You know, no, 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 I'm not going to smoke in your
2: car. So, yeah, I've got an addictive personality. Yeah,
1: and was was it hard going off all that stuff, and particularly the alcohol and and the coke and the weed, and then just having to, like... um I know, I suppose you feel particularly vulnerable at that point. Like there's no, you're not taking anything to mask your emotions or your feelings. And I'm
2: not going, like my mates say, go to AA, go to NA, go to all these, Mm. but what, you want me to get fucking addicted to a god of my choice? That's not (laughs) for me. You know, it's just not for me. Yeah, it works for some, but whatever. Well, I'm from the school of whatever works, but I'm I'm pig-headed. And then one day I discovered something. I'm an addict, Dom. So why don't you use my addictive personality for good? So I got addicted to being clean and sober. Yeah. I addicted, so I counted, I counted days. How are you, Mike? 833, dude, I'm fucking awesome. Well, been 833, so I would just count days, count days, count days. For 10 years, I counted
3: yeah.
1: days. I was going to ask if you still do it now. You must be no. like five, whatever thousand. I, I have yeah. no clue where right. I'm at Go now.
2: I just, don't, I just don't bother. But that's what I needed to do to get me through. I got addicted. Use my addictive personality for good.
1: So, um, yes, yeah, so, so it was around this time, like 2007, eight, 9, whatever, that you you came out publicly and said you suffered depression. Was um, was that a big call? Why did you decide to do that?
2: Uh, again, you know, like, well, it happened accidentally, really. Uh, so, I'm I'm at home. I'm depressed. I'm not going anywhere. Willie Jackson's worrying about me, right? He's on radio. Yeah. He's on Radio Live and he's worrying about me. You need to go back to work. Fuck you. I don't need to go back to work. I'm fine. You need to get – fuck you. You get out of the house. I'm not getting out of the house. And he goes – so he goes, um, Martin Crump's going off for a week. I'm going to get you that job. You're going to come in and do – the. I don't want to do the fucking radio. You know, you need to get out. What a good mate. So I went into Radio Live, and 70, uh, 746, 725, Radio Live, I'm my king, you know. I started reading out the headlines, oh, you know, today they da da-da-da, da da If you've got a da-da-da, da-da-da, interest rates have gone up point two percent If you're going to struggle with the interest rate, give us a call. But everyone had done these topics all day, yeah, right? Yeah. And then I'd come back and i look at the board, no calls. Hey, uh, da-da-da, da-da-da, there's a piece of paper lying down the street. If you have paper lying down your street, give us a call. I went mean, 746, 725. 5 radio live, <laughs> and we're gonna go to another break. And uh, 20 past 10, yeah. 20 past 25 past 10, at night, yeah, yeah, yeah. Producer goes, Uh, we're gonna go break, no more breaks. And then my inner critic started, you know, just start swearing, just start swearing, start swearing. People will call, don't you just tell the truth, tell the truth, tell them there's no one there. So I had this big fucking war going on in my head, and it was dead air. Dead air for 30 seconds, and I'm just closing my eyes, and then I went, fuck it, just tell Uh, the truth. And I just told her, I said, hey, Ron, uh, there are no calls. There have been no calls. I've been lying to you for the last 20 minutes, Uh, and if no one calls in the next five seconds, I'm going to start talking to the voices in my head. Mm. Then I closed my eyes, and I started talking you know, the reason no one's calling is because no one likes you. Oh, people like you. They're probably eating dinner. Eating dinner It's 20 past 10 at night. Yeah. No one eats uh, dinner at 20 past 10 at night. He's just a loser. You know, why do you always call Michael a loser? Why do you always call him Michael? And this stream of unconscious thought came out mm-hmm. of my mouth. And then my producer went, you better take the calls. And I had a full board. And the first fellow I talked to was a fellow, multiple boy called Rangi. I knew his uh, because his name was Rangi, and the first thing thing he said to me was, Bro, 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 I have those voices too. Mm. And as soon as he said that, I just felt a connection. So me and Rangi, we had a conversation, all eight of us, and we were just just talking, and then the next call, and then the next call. And then I had a 12-year-old girl call in. And she was like, this is, she was crying. she goes, this is never, like I've been having mental health issues and what you're describing is exactly what it is. And Caitlin was her name. Yeah. I invited Caitlin's whole family up to the studio the next night and they all came up, you know, all of these people who were just connected. Yeah, You know, and.
1: That must have felt so good.
2: Yeah, well, then the next day I went in, yeah. oh, we have full board of calls. So the next day I go in and I say, we can talk about all this shit or we can talk about what we were talking about last time. Full board of calls. Full board of calls. And then um, by the end of the week, we were the Nutters Club. You know, hey, yeah. this is the Nutters Club. Let's it's still come. going.
1: You're, you're not involved with it anymore, but it's still going to this day. Yeah, isn't it's that? still the going club.
2: on yeah. New South ZB yeah. with Hamish and, um, and Kyle. Um, I just, like... I couldn't do it anymore. Physically, I couldn't do it. 11 to 1, I'm in the schools on Monday morning, and I'm up at 5, so I get to bed at 3. I've got two hours sleep. Monday's easy. I can get through Tuesday's killed me. It was like the morning after the morning after mm, the night before. Yeah. And in the end, I just had to make a call. Yeah. And my focus wasn't on everyone's mental well-being by that stage. It was on kids. And so... I spent the next five years researching and listening. When I first started, I was like everyone. I wanted to go in and I thought I had all the answers and I was going to do this and I was going to do that and I was going to do this. And then after speaking in the first few schools, I realized I didn't know what the problem was. Yeah. So I lost board members because they were like, we need to reproduce my kings. We need to get my kings out there. And I'm like, just slow down. I don't know what the problem is. You know, once we discover what the problem is, then we can set yeah. about our task in earnest. And it took me five or six years to understand that the biggest problem we've got is imposter syndrome, and mm. overactive inner critic. Mm. Uh, and now it's so obvious, yet we've got all of these agencies mm. that, that won't even listen. They don't even believe it. No, that's not. The biggest problem is depression. It's anxiety. No, these are the outcomes of an overactive inner critic, you fucking moron. On, you know, if you know, we're, we're always focusing on behavior, yeah, we're never yeah. asked what drives the behavior. You know, eating disorders are the biggest problem facing young people today. Yet when you go to the eating disorder clinic, they make it about the food. My daughter's got an eating disorder. And we go to the eating disorder clinic and, you know, right, we're all going to have a shared lunch today so your lovely daughter can see what it's like mm. to eat. Um, you know, and and every time she says something, that's not her speaking, that's mm. Anna. That's Anna speaking. I'm like, what the Oh, (laughs) anorexia. And and then one day my daughter said after four sessions, Mm. she goes, you know, my problem's not food, eh? Food's not my problem. Mm. The problem, if it wasn't food, it'd be alcohol, it would be drugs, it would be boys, it would be the gym. I want to know why my brain is making it about the food. And that was the last session we had there. But we focus on behaviour. Like we do it with everything, drug dealers, you know, drugs, throw all the dealers in jail. Let's ask the serious question, why are there so many people today that need to be on drugs? What are the drugs doing? And in 90% of the cases, brother, it's shutting that fucking self-doubt up. Yeah, You know, it's or alcohol, you know, same thing. It gives you a break from Temporary release, yeah, you're escaping. It's the relentless pursuit of temporary happiness. Yeah. You know, and the irony is people say to me, like my, my friends, you know, what what's it like being an addict? You tell me I'm not an addict. Dude, you go to the gym seven days a week, you miss a day, you turn into an asshole. You <laughs> know. Uh, you know, oh bro, what's it like hiding things from the missus? You tell me I don't hide things. Dude, you play golf three times a week, your mm. missus thinks you play once a fortnight. You're fucking lying, you yeah. know. So the, the 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 thing that most men are addicted to more than anything else is work. You know, I fire money at the problem, I've got troubles at home, I've got fucking troubles with self-esteem, and to cover it all up, I fucking throw money at it.
1: Yeah. So when was I Am Hope Born? When did that come about?
2: Um, That was just an accident, really. I was working with some suicidal kids, and I was talking to them saying, how come we never talk? Because we don't know who's safe. What does that mean? We don't know who's going to judge me. We don't know who's going to gossip about me. I don't know. You know, like, I don't know who's safe, you know. I I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be pointed at. I said, so, you know, we need to do something about that. Why don't we come up with something that signals I am safe? And they came up with a wristband that says, I am hope. If you're, you know, if you're wearing the wristband, what you're saying to people is, I won't judge you. I won't fucking gossip about you. Uh, I'll be there for you. Most importantly, I won't try and fix you. I'm not qualified to fix you. Mm. I won't take on your problem. I'm not qualified, but I'm here to listen. And if you need help, I'll go with you. Yeah. But if you need to offload shit, I will sit here and listen. I will call time on the conversation if I need to. Yeah. But but I'm feeling you, you know, and I have experiences that, you know, similar to yours. So um, I Am Hope was was born and... Mm. You know, and it just took off. I couldn't believe in that in a big way. Yeah, just yeah. had no idea that it was going to take off, and you know, it's around the kids. And mm-hmm. so, people. So when we were doing our I am Hope talks, um, the biggest thing that happened. So we talk about our experiences, and we would encourage counselling. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because my counsellor saved my life, and I was saying to the kids, look. Ignore what the counsellor looks like. It's someone that's not from your circle. It's someone that doesn't have your background. Go to this independent person. And I'd shared my experience. So we made counselling cool. Problem was, some schools didn't have counsellors, and in some schools the the counsellor there was related to mum in some way or was a teacher and they didn't feel like they could talk. So they'd contact me and I'd say, just go and see someone private. I'll find yeah. you someone private and I will pay for it. By 2018, um, those private sessions, which we, we didn't advertise, were running at about $10,000 a month. So we were paying about $10,000 a month for private sessions. Yeah. And then someone came up with the gumboot Friday idea. You know, having depression is like walking through mud. Most people are hiding it. Why don't we all put on gumboots so people who have depression can see people in gumboots and know mm. that these are people that care, and we can raise money for them. And they said they can, We can raise money for your charity. And straight away I went, why don't we raise money for free counselling? Mm. But unlike other charities, why don't we donate one hundred percent of the funds? to counselling. So I set up a bank account with Kiwi Bank and the only way it can come out was with an invoice from um from a counsellor. And we will cover the um the admin. I'm already paying hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year in free counselling. That should be more than enough to to cover the yearly rate of what's the name, so of the admin. So yeah, yeah. that's that's what we do. You know, unfortunately, now there's, you know, it's, it runs at about 10%, the admin. So, you know, we've only got enough to cover 1.2, but I just work my house off going around to corporates and going around to well-meaning people and asking them to help me yeah. with the admin. And and the admin, none of it comes to us. We outsource the admin. We outsource us to... And 100% of that money goes to them. We don't clip the ticket. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's... For me... My big thing with people who are collecting money for charity is I always, go, how much of my ten dollars is going to you? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very to, thirsty charity. And isn't I, it? I
2: always ask the kids, so do you? You know, do you get are you volunteering for this? Oh no, we get minimum wage, so you're being paid to do this. So some of this money is going mm. to you. No offense, but I'm not. I'm you know. I'm, yeah. And I got my own charity, you know. So I just wanted to do something that you know our kids could you know use. And why counseling? This way, because in order for a kid to get free counselling in this country through the Ministry of Health, you have to go to the doctor. The doctor has to diagnose you mentally ill. That stigma follows you because it's on your records for the rest of your life.
1: Then you... Oh, yeah, it makes it hard to get insurance and all then, sorts yeah, of things. Oh,
2: and, yeah, all yeah, kinds. Yeah. Then next thing, you you know, you're also on a long waiting list and then, you, you know, you're by the end of getting in to see someone, you know, they're often burnt out and they don't have time. Yeah. So this way here is... You know, this way here is get in early. So the government see, the Ministry of Health see counselling as a crisis situation. We see it as a preventative situation. So you go and see a counsellor when you're in crisis. Too late when you're in fucking crisis. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Now you need the hospital. Our whole thing is... If you see a counsellor about a little problem, it doesn't come to be a big problem, and they just help unscramble thoughts. They don't fix you; they help you unscramble your thoughts. They yeah. empower you to fix. Give yourself. you a different way of looking at things. So young people don't want to see counsellors because they're mentally ill. They go and see counsellors to stay well. I had a um, a government uh, a minister's um, uh, a minister's aide, you know, his the guy that gives them all his ideas, ring me up and say. Um, you're going to be Friday, it we'll never be funded. Why not? Because anyone can use it. What do you mean? You don't even have to be mentally ill to use it. Okay, you're a fucking idiot. What do you mean? Uh, so you're saying that someone has to be mentally ill to see a fucking counsellor. That's like saying to someone, why are you going to a doctor? You haven't had a heart attack. Why are you at the hospital? Why are you at the gym? You haven't had a heart attack. I said... Kids don't want to see accounts because they're mentally ill. They go to stay well. You fucking yeah, moron. it's the ambulance at the, yeah, top of the top of the cliff. It's such a broken system. Oh. So what they do is they fund bricks and mortar, right? It's like they set up a taxi company. You've got to have an office. You've got to have the admin. You've got to have lawyers. You've got to have contractors. Then you've got to buy the taxis and the drivers and the councillors. But in order to see the councillor, you've got to go to the taxi rank, and you don't get a choice of what driver you want. You've got to take the first cab off the rank. And this is under the access and choice. So with that, it's between three hundred and $2,000, right? And this is under access and choice where there's limited access and there's no choice. Yeah under our system or what have we done we invented uber that's all we did <laughs> yeah That's what, you carry the cost of yeah. the car you carry the cost of the account you just charge us what you charge us up front yeah. with all of those things built in and the average cost is $147
1: man you you have got so much passion and so much energy for this i can i can i can almost see the rage do you um do, I mean, how, how do you how do you keep your own mental health in check? Because it's like you. Might, I worry about you, and I worry about Jazz Thornton a little bit from uh, Voices of Hope because it's like you, you take a lot on. You're taking on a lot of other people's problems, and that's no, I to, that's, don't. You, no, I but don't. People share their, yeah, their yeah, problems with you. That's got to bring you. No, it
2: doesn't. No? You know, you want to know why? My job's not to take on other people's problems. My job's not to. I'm I pathway people so. Our current system deals with individuals. I'm looking at the big picture. So our focus is this positive societal attitudinal change. Remember this. 80% of people in crisis never ask for help because they're worried about what society thinks, Mm. says, or does. So... Until we change society's attitude, you can have the best mental health system in the world. You can throw a billion dollars a day at it. Mm. But if people aren't buying into it, you're wasting your fucking time. So attitudes have to change. Yeah. So I will listen to your problem. I don't take it personally. I will listen to your the, the, the tale of your son being... Refused to help at at a hospital, and then going back an hour late and being trespassed off the premises to him dying seven hours later. Mm. I will listen to that. I will I will <sighs> be enraged by that, and I use that as my motivation going forward. Right. Okay. So it's always about see. Jazz is a bit different. She you know she's she takes every. I don't take everything on my. My, Is that a
1: maturity thing, do you think?
2: Well, so I, I've just looked at where I can be most effective, Yeah, you know. And, like, I can save individuals, and I don't buy into that argument. Oh, if we save one life, it's all worth it, <laughs> I, you know. So, yeah. you know.
1: Shut you, 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 get, you get so wound up talking about it, I can tell. You're, well, I'm passionate. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you know, are, you are. At
2: the, at the end of the – so we have DHBs referring – People to gumboot Friday, we cope mm. with their overload, and people say to me, "Say something, tell them they can't do it." I, why? It's not about them; it's about the fucking kids.
3: Mm.
2: You know, my, my you know, my saying is they are all our children. Yeah. When you have been to every decile of school in the country, you will know that in the elite private schools of this country, they have equally as many kids who are fucking struggling with mental health issues and in some cases more than poorer areas. Yeah. You know, I don't care if you're a redneck piece of shit that hates Māori and hates me. I love your child mm. and I will i will crawl over broken glass to get your child the care yeah. that they need. And you've got to have that You've got to have that attitude that everyone is equal mm. in mental health.
1: God, you've done some good work. Hey? You, just, just, you sleep well at, at night these days? I never sleep, bro. Oh, Yeah, I, you deserve a good night's sleep. No, I, you, t- you should t- be. T-
2: I wake up every two hours. My Windows sixty-two, Dom. Windows 62 <laughs> does not stop. It does <laughs> well, not stop. Tea, it is always, uh. always working. There are always things that I have to write down. There are always mm. things that, you know, look, I've got 10 years left if I'm lucky.
1: Oh, come on. How, how can you say if, that?
2: Well, I've, I've, had, um, right. I've had a major stroke. I've got one, one artery working to my brain at the moment. I've had... Two um two heart um not surgeries but heart fucking things. I pass or no? No no no. Um, what Stents. Do you call uh, yeah. No, they have. You know, when you're awake, they put shit through your heart. Right. Fucking. So I've had two of. Those. You got no vices now. You're a healthy dude. That no, doesn't matter. You yeah. know, I, I smoked for most of my life. I put huge mountains of coke up my nose, and I smoked weed from. 13 years old, right up till I was 45 every day. You know, I was a, when I left smoking, I was a 40 smoker a day. Mm. So I'm a realist. You know, if, if the big man came out of the sky today and said, I'll give you 15 years, I'll take you, I'll take the 15!
1: 15!
3: 15!
1: Thank you! 15! So you what, what are you now, 16?
2: So I'm 60. I've got 10 years yeah. left. I'm going to make them count. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I fucked around enough. I, you know, I, I made, you know, was, I spent most of my life making everything about me. I, You know, I look at this younger generation and they they, they need a soldier. You know, they need someone out front kicking down doors and warding off all of the people who tell you why you can't do so. They need someone out there advocating for them. Mm. And I'm going to be out front... Um, so they can go on and change the world. I seriously believe yeah. that they can change the world. They just need someone to take the bullets from all the old fucks out there that are trying <laughs> to stop them. And that's yeah. my job. I know what my purpose is. I, you know, I know it's a, you know, it's a, it's a huge sacrifice for my family. Mm. You know, in terms of the time and effort well, and energy, you, I'm always out there fighting wars. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to. Spend more time with my wife you know she deserves the time Uh, I have unique ways of dealing with that I said babe we need to spend more time together and she went really I said yes that's exactly what we need to do Um, I took up golf again at the beginning of the year so I went and bought her a set of golf clubs and we go out to the driving range she's learning I'm getting her lessons and we're going to go out and play golf whenever we can. Cool. You know, and I just, I just want to, you know, I, w- I want to give her some quality time. But she knows that we're on a bus. It's uh, going really fucking fast. Mm. And I'm not getting off the bus. So get on the bus and come with me for the ride. And, you know... and. Be with me as much as you can, and we'll just see where that takes
1: us. Fuck! Like what a what a positive bus as well. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. we just—is this what you're doing now? Is this your legacy?
2: You reckon? Well, your legacy is what other people decide. Yeah. Um, this is. What do you, you think?
1: When, when you die, what do you? What would you like? What would you like to think people say about you?
2: I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no seriously. Yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, you know. Like I always say this to teachers. You know. You, <laughs> You never you will never know the effect that you have on kids. You will never know how many lives you change, you know. But your family your funeral. When they see everybody that turns up, when the when the dad's standing there with his five kids and he's saying, This lady saved my life. If this lady wasn't here, this great person wasn't here, none of us would be here. We owe everything to that person. Yeah. So you know, and there'll always be people that turn up to your funeral. And go, I just turned up just to make sure you're dead. You, are, <laughs> of, you know, and that's oh, life, know. right? But that's life. Yeah, that's life. I don't oh, know. No, I
1: think twenty years ago you would have had a bunch of those people, but I feel like that that crowd has diminished now. Oh, uh, I don't know. Look, it
2: doesn't it doesn't matter. My no. m- my soul, you know, legacy, smegacy. Fuck. Mm.
1: Well, is there an afterlife so, or uh, anything? You know,
2: just because you brought up legacy, mm. I remember. I went and saw um, Willie Jackson. I want to fucking... I want to say it, right? Mm. And I I was talking to him about, you know, Gumboot Friday and why aren't we getting funding and, you know, here's all of our initiative. Why... Aren't you? I see you out there fighting for Tamahiri. I see you out there fighting for everyone. Mm. You know, sure. Like I'm, 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 I'm not exclusively Maori families, but if we lift up everyone's families, then the the, the Maori families will come up too. Yeah. Currently, we're focusing on Maori families, and those numbers are fucking going down, so it's not working. Mm. But if we lift everyone up, if if the the care comes up for white people, naturally it comes up. So let's, you know. And I'm saying there, and he's like, "Oh, bro, you know, bro." <laughs> Bobo, and i was like you know how i feel willie and i just said this right i said i fucking just feel like giving back that fucking medal that you guys gave me and he t- he went ha, 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 there goes your knighthood and he laughed and said there goes your knighthood, and that fucking enraged me and i just said do you, do you think i'm here for a fucking knighthood pal is that what you actually think I'm yes. not here for fucking knighthoods, and and that was the day I went home and I said to my, wife, I'm giving that fucking thing. So this
1: right? was the o- Officer of the Order of Merit yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 New yeah,
2: yeah, of merit yeah. Thing. yeah, yeah. Surely the, I mean, I the know, stepping stone to a knighthood.
1: <laughs> I know you're not doing any of this for the accolades, but the um the New Zealander of the Year thing in 2019 that must have meant a lot. Yeah,
2: that, that was huge.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's massive.
2: Because it's a people's award. Yeah, people nominate. Know the, the the proudest award that you know I ever got, and in, in comedy was People's Choice in Metro mm-hmm. Magazine three times. You know, I, I you know I don't give a fuck what anyone else and I, like you know. It's funny it's, funny
1: how like the, the side of you has never changed. Like earlier we were talking about. Um, how you shat on Andrew Shaw, who was a TV executive, and yeah. people were like, "Oh, you never get on TV," and you're like, "I don't give a fuck. Yeah. You still get on TV. Who knows? You, you might, even though you don't care about it, you might still get that knighthood, even though no, you're no, you never. You're, oh, is that no, so? That's
2: no, burnt now, oh, okay. Bro. Yeah, you can't, you can't give. Like, you know, the Queen had to say yes. Mm. Like, uh, you know, had to get a letter from the fucking Queen, right? You know, and um, you know, uh, so yeah, no, no, that's a bridge that's burnt, and, right? Like, who cares?
1: <laughs> yeah. Who, who cares? cares, man?
2: <laughs> you know they, they hand them yeah. fucking things out yeah. lollies like lollies. They gave Ron Broiley one. What? Yeah. You know. What, you know, it's, <laughs> oh, you know yeah. I don't know. It's it's just and, you know a lot of people deserve them. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Most. You, you do. You, yeah, you're,
1: you're but you've done um, a tremendous amount of work. Yeah,
2: I know. But that's not the motivation. No, you know, I know it's so, not. But there well, are so many people in the game now that are in it for a fucking knighthood. You know, mm. people are jumping, and oh, they're giving away knighthoods. So, like, I'll yeah, I just look. People first, man. People first. Mm. You know, I I love sitting at Mangere Bridge, and you know, every day people coming up to me and hugging me and telling about their kids. Man, that's that's the reward yeah. right there, man. That's the reward right there. You know, my team. I wrote a book called Tr and Mac, the Hopeful Black Dog. Mm. So it's about a black dog, um, and. The book was about bullying. And you know, our current our current uh, plan to deal with bullying is let's bully the bully. Right. You know. Yeah. Whereas I now know because I travel around schools that bullies bully because they're being bullied. And you know, yeah, they've got their own yeah. shit going yeah. on. So yeah. let's be kind. Let's say anyway, I wrote this book and my team go into primary schools and they read this book to give kids a better understanding of what's going on in the bully's head. But also helping bullies to understand that what you're doing is not love. That's not love. You know, they think love is, you know, is bullying. Um, and and giving people a better answer. And a little girl went up to um, my ambassador who read the story, and she said, can I talk to you? And she said, yeah, what's up, darling? She goes, did the man who wrote this book know it was going to help so many of us? Mm. And that's yeah. right there, man. That's better than any fucking knighthood. And my eight-year-old daughter, when I, when, when she found out I couldn't get, uh, you know, I was never going to be a sir, she goes, Dad, kings are higher
1: than sirs anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Will you ever do um, any stand-up again, do you think? Um, I feel like, like you're, you're still fucking funny. Like before when you were talking about your big giant head and your, 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 your white pubes. I, I mean, you, you can do different shtick to what you used to do. Well, I don't
2: trust myself. <laughs> no, seriously. I've done it twice since I retired. Only twice. Uh, once at Quentin after uh, aftermatch mm. and once at the Mad Butcher. Now, at Quentin after aftermatch, Like, I smashed
3: it. Yeah, there (laughs) he is. Welcome back.
2: And I was, like, I I had to leave. Yeah. And the same after Mad Butcher Roast. I had to actually leave. I realized how dangerous that it was. In terms of ego? Yeah, and, and like, it's addictive, man. If you can, like, if you can make a room full of fucking people, like, spit their drink, you know. Yeah, it's a rush. It's it's, yeah, it's, I can't do it. I just can't. I don't trust myself. It'll be like, I can just have one drink. I can just <laughs> tell one joke. I can incorporate my comedy in my talks, which I do, mm. um, and that's enough. Yeah. It's, it's comedy with a difference. And um, if people want to understand vulnerability more, and I watched this woman, my wife, Went on and on about. We've got to watch this thing. You got to watch uh, this. Brene Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and and, and like everything that Brene says, I've been practicing mm. since two thousand and seven. Yeah. And it was one of those lovely feelings where I had finally had boxes to put things yeah. in. The other, the other, only other moment where I've had that was when I read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point.
1: Oh yeah, I love you that know? book.
2: Yeah, it was like. You know, oh, I'm a maven, I'm a salesman, and I'm a connector. You yeah. know, but I had boxes. You know, when you just do things because they feel right, mm. and then suddenly you've got boxes. It's the first book I'd ever got to the end and started reading again. I just, yeah. uh, you know, so Brené Brown mm. on Netflix, just it is, it is a wonderful read. You know, yeah. and the story I'm telling myself is such a great way of, you know, just talking to partners. You know, when you when your partner's not saying something and I know there's friction and, you know, like you're getting angry because why aren't you fucking talking to me? Hey, babe, I don't know what's happening. I know there's something. But the story I'm telling myself is I did this, 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 and this, and you've did that. No, that's not what I'm thinking at all. I'm thinking it's it's just a nice air clearer, you know, the story I'm telling myself – my inner critic is telling me, you know.
1: Yeah, I, I must admit I've been a, a late entrant to the uh, vulnerability club. Like, it's, it was only a few years ago for me, but I think part of that's because I went to um, – I'm probably a similar generation to you, a little bit younger than you, but I went to an all-boys school in Palmy North, and any – Which any one? Palmy Boys. Yeah, fuck so, so any –
2: The best fucking hucker <laughs> at Palmy
1: – Oh, they gave you one?
2: Yeah, they gave me one. Like New Plymouth Boys Hive. Mm. Like, I've, I've got a – I filmed them all, man. Mm. I, I have got a folder full of huckers from ar- around just about every school. I've got one of the special ones I got after we got New Zealander of the Year was uh, the Crusaders gave me their hucker on their field.
1: That shit so, means more than a night, no, right? No, no, it's
2: just, yeah. just yeah,
1: yeah. it's,
3: it's
2: fine, chummy. So no, but uh, you know, we're all changing. But yeah. vulnerability is the new economy, mm. you know. And that doesn't mean we go and fucking just throw our dirty laundry out at everything. <laughs> you know, it's just being more honest. Yeah. When yeah. people say, "You know, how are you today, Dom?" Instead of say, "I'm good," because it's a natural thing mm-hmm. to say. You know, um, what I say now is, "How are you go?" My inner critic's smashing me, bro. Mm. You know, and now mm. suddenly it's not a conversation anymore. It's gossip. Oh fuck, what happened? Oh, <laughs> 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 well, I walked past Dom this morning and the fucking asshole just ignored me and yeah. I must be But you know what fucking Dom's mm-hmm. like. And and of, oftentimes when you do that, the other person provide context. Oh well you know Dom had to take his dog to the fucking vet today, don't yeah. you? The dog got Fuck really? So now it's not about me. Oh fuck thanks, but I've got to go and check in on Dom. Yeah. Fuck I didn't know about the dog. You know, and that's that's what being honest is about. Yep. It's looking for ways that you can be vulnerable without you know, without crossing the line of burdening people with yeah. your I think that's what I should write a book on actually. Ways to have a conversation without burdening people.
1: Yeah. That'd be a good read. Yeah, I don't I- write. <laughs> I won't do it. Audio book. I won't do <laughs> okay. it. I won't do it. All right. Hey um geez, we've we've been sitting here for over two hours and we, really? we keep going. What what a rich life.
2: Yeah it's hey, been, been colourful. I've played rugby with the All Blacks. Yeah. Last you know, I like until the last year when I had my last game of rugby at fifty nine, the last game of rugby before that I was I played with the All Blacks. I was on the tour on the Coca Cola convoy with them in nineteen ninety five uh, they ran out of reserves. I ran onto the wing. Did they pass me the ball? No. Did I touch the ball? No. But get fucked. <laughs> I know that there are other All Blacks who did the same thing. Yeah, I yeah. fucking was on the All Black team. Yeah, yeah. I played with the Black Caps. I fucking yeah. toured hip hop artists. Uh, you know, I've been around the world. I've been on the same stage with J- Dave Chappelle. You know, I just, mm. I, I've, I've had a really, really blessed life. And sometimes when I'm down on myself, I have to remind myself. And, you know, I've got six. Uh, five, six beautiful kids. You know, it's life's most days. Life's good. Other days, it's shit. Well,
1: you reap what you sow. So you definitely deserve more good days than bad days.
2: Thank you, my brother. Yeah,
1: thanks, bro. Really appreciate your time. You're a great New Zealander.
2: Oh, thank you, bro. Who's our sponsors?
1: Ooh, I don't know who's sponsoring this episode.
2: Oh, really? I don't know. Well, whoever you are, you're amazing, (laughs) and none of this would be possible without your sponsorship.
1: There he is, the comedian. <laughs> Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U L T R O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U L T R O, and the discount code DOM20.